I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> welcome to the third of the Disney specials recorded with Daniel Floyd starting back in 2014. In this compilation, we have Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, and Sleeping Beauty. Using all the magic at his command, Walt Disney brings you his wondrous all-cartoon feature, Cinderella. Sparkling with pure enchantment, filled with lasting enjoyment, and overflowing with unforgettable entertainment. The thingamabob that does the job is Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo. Oh, Sonic and There's also the fun of fascinating and humorous Disney characters who bring to life Cinderella's exciting story. Meet Jacques, Gus Gus, and Lucifer. And there's the magic of music in some of the happiest melodies ever heard. Is a wish your heart made. When you watch Disney documentaries and promotional materials, the tendency is to spout hyperbole about the magic that the final results constitute. The legend within our hearts. The remit of these podcasts is to look at the output of Disney Studios in the manner that cuts out the non-discerning gushing and focuses on the hard work that went into them, the conflict that no one ever really talks about, the stories that they tell and the characters that they depict and how they really stand up today. So when we gush you know it comes from the heart. So we'll start strong with Cinderella. Dan, what do you like about this movie? I actually like a lot about Cinderella. Now, I expected watching it that I was going to be kind of have a middling opinion of it. I didn't remember it. I didn't remember loving it as much as a kid. But looking at it now, maybe it's just that I'd been watching five or six package films in a row I'm sorry, is my cat talking? <laughs> yes. Sad Abraham DeLacy, G. Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley. O'Malley the alley cat. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I just so, didn't know. When was the last time you actually really acquainted yourself with this one? Uh, I mean, like a lot of these kind of classic Disney films, I don't think I've seen them since I was probably in... Grade school, maybe college at some point, but it's definitely been a while for a lot of these. And uh, I didn't know exactly what to expect, but again, maybe it is just that I'd been watching a bunch of package films before this, but yeah. this movie looks amazing after you've been watching those shorts. Like, yeah. the character animation is such, it's so far beyond what they've been doing the last 10 years. The background art is amazing. It feels like the studio had been kind of building up like 
desperately wanting to make a movie of this quality for a decade and finally was able to and just kind of opened up and just like just completely opened it up all the way and unleashed their full ability on this movie. score and the songs are all great i actually like cinderella as a character a lot more than i expected to mm-hmm. i have very little actually bad to say about this movie you can leave that all to us there you go. okay <laughs> i will i don't know actually don't i uh, don't fear folks we're not gonna rip this one a, a new one i think it probably um i don't, I don't know actually, uh, maybe i'll turn this one over to sharon first because uh, you had uh, you were kind of up and down in fact i no, I, I know you have very specific reasons why what about this surprised you and what appealed to you so yeah go for it yeah absolutely and i mean to be honest with you it was kind of summed up when we were watching some of the background um documentaries um i i remembered cinderella as being one i wasn't that keen on Mm. um and specifically um that it plays into the whole trope of um the princess in waiting very strongly this this notion that um because they talk about the the cinderella story being like this rags to riches um uh, parallel with um the american dream and and sort of uh. walt's rise to from being this a paper boy um and a, a kid who worked on a farm that waltz was a cinderella story exactly that, that he then you know rose to become this incredibly um wealthy and and well-respected Uh, studio owner but that's not the same thing because what cinderella as a story is basically saying is that if your life is all hardship and chores what you should actually do is wait take the hardship do the chores and one day a prince will come along and marry you and everything will be marvelous Um, and that was kind of what i was all set up to to dislike about the film Mm -hmm. and then we watched it and i thought there's actually a lot more to this um, than than I remember there being, or certainly that I have attributed to the Cinderella story, because that's there. That idea of of you know the the hard luck girl who kind of gets plucked out of her miserable existence and and placed into this highest position in the land type thing, and and obviously that's where a lot of the the princess um, trope and and um, uh, plot line stems from, but the way they've built her character up in layers is actually quite interesting because she's she's not um, totally passive, um, you know, takes all her punishment with a smile on her face. That's Snow White. That's what Snow White does. Um, totally naive about her situation. Uh, no understanding of how she can change it. Cinderella is more grown up than that. She's more aware than that. She has uh, acquired friends 
um, by being kind to the animals around her um, and, um, you know, providing them with clothes and food. And in return, they don't just give her companionship, which Snow White's woodland friends basically come and sing to her. And yes, they help her tidy up the, um, uh, the dwarf's cottage. But Cinderella's animal friends actually provide her with practical help when it's required all the way through the film. And they save her ass at the end. Exactly, yeah. And and that's all something that stemmed from uh, an exchange of services and assistance. She's helped them and therefore they help her. Um, she's also... Um, she has all these sort of little sly expressions when the, the stepmother and the, um, the sisters are being cruel to her. You know, she, she bows her head at the appropriate times and she makes out like she's not really um, uh, thinking of being impertinent to them or anything like that. But when they're out of the way, she sings, she dances, you know, she, she makes something of the existence that they allow her to have. Yeah. Um, but in a way that's... that's kind of it's really difficult to put my finger on but it, just something about the way she speaks the way she acts just makes me feel like she's not she doesn't allow her spirit to be broken exactly but in a conscious way mm. not just in a she's too stupid to know what's going on kind of way no no it feels like there's so a very it's not coming off well in this is she? <laughs> she's not no <laughs> it does feel like cinderella has a very carefully guarded disdain for these people that she's stuck serving and you can see it just kind of in her expressions and like you said in her very carefully chosen words and t- carefully timed little bows and just there are moments she expected. could pretty much turn to the camera as if to say get a lot of these guys yeah, yeah. she's, she's uh, almost sarcastic occasionally mm. which you don't oh, yeah. expect from a disney character mm. Yeah, I love that the one line where she, the one line where she says, "I have to go up and interrupt the uh, music lesson," <laughs> <laughs> as as she hears her sisters upstairs singing horribly. The pear-shaped toes sing, sweet nightingale, sing, sweet nightingale. But she's very gracious and diplomatic about it. So I suppose she is kind of a queen in waiting. She's she's got a lot of personality and really it and you're right, it doesn't feel like this goodness and this respect she's giving these she's 
giving to these people is coming from being dumb or too stupid to know the horrible situation she's in. It really comes off more as just superhuman patience. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the thing that really tripped it for me, that really made me think, actually, yeah, I, I do quite like her as a character for the, the level of, of storytelling that we're at at the moment, um, is the dress. Is the fact that um, it's not just she wants to go to the ball so the fairy godmother turns up and waves a wand and magically makes everything happen for her. She's tried. She's tried to do it herself. She's negotiated being allowed to go. The stepmother said, yes, here's this big long list of chores. And if you get them all done, then yes, you can go to the ball. And she does them. And she's um, the, the mice have helped her. And she, you know, But she had an idea of the dress she was going to wear. She'd sorted something out. It was all set up. She'd done that all off her own back. It's just the fact that it all got pulled out from underneath her at the last minute. Mm. And that almost kind of... It, not so much that it's it's karma that horrible things have happened to her and therefore the magic will come along and make everything all right again but just the fact that she's worked to earn that reward with the child's sense of justice that a lot of the disney audience would have she must get that reward she she there needs to be a way that she can have what she's worked so hard <coughs> for so it kind of seems um not magical and wonderful and dreamlike and amazing and this will solve all of your problems with a wave of my magic wand but just fair that the godmother turns up and um and organizes mm. the coach. rebalancing the otherwise exactly. uh, the, the odds are so stacked against her yeah by eleanor audley as lady tremaine one of the absolute shining stars of this film horrible thankless task because everyone hates her as a character uh, but she presents a, a, a genuinely insidious antagonist um, for the first time in, in a, a, I'm racking my brains for somebody who's quite this mean spirited and uh, seems to, to to revel in in, in sadistic little uh, orders, but done in a. She's kind of the proto Gothel or I was Mother Gothel comes Gothel, from yes. her. So- Someone who's in that position of caring authority mm. and misuses it so horrendously. Yeah. She has yellow eyes. I swear, yellow eyes. And like the first time you meet her, uh, you, you come into the, the, the bedroom and you can just see her eyes and Lucifer's eyes, the cat, in the darkness, both like one above the other. They're sort of glaring out of the shadows. She's conducting her discussion with Cinderella in a, uh, a, a civilized manner. But then you get who she really is with... Uh, you know, da, 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 da. clean it, and the tapestries, and the draperies, and I'll have you doing this for the rest of your life. Oh, Lucifer, won't you ever learn? Cinderella? Yes, stepmother. <laughs> Are you going to get it? Close the door, Cinderella. Please, you don't think that I... Hold your tongue. Now. (laughs) It seems we have time on our hands. But I was only trying to... Silence! Time for vicious, practical jokes. Perhaps we can put it to better use. Now, let me see. 
There's the large carpet in the main hall. Clean it. And the windows upstairs and down. Wash them. Oh, yes, and the tapestries and the draperies. But I just finished... Do them again. And don't forget the garden. Then scrub the terrace, sweep the halls and the stairs, clean the chimneys. And, of course, there's the mending and the sewing and the laundry. Oh, yes. And one more thing. See that Lucifer gets his bath. Here's a theory. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a Jungian interpretation for a start. Uh, given that cats often represent uh, female sexuality, Lucifer, who is named after the devil, mm-hmm. is the stepmother's repressed womanhood that nice. she is taking out on Cinderella. And far more juvenile. And Lucifer is very impulsive and doesn't hold back on anything. Lucifer just does whatever he wants. In fact, Lucifer is never happier or more energetic than when he has an opportunity to ruin somebody's day. Oh, yeah, yeah. He does it. <laughs> yep. yeah, again, he's sadistic, just like Tremaine. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's almost like the, the, the stepsisters. I think it's, it's bopping down as whether they're the ugly sisters. I heard someone on the, uh, the making of calling them the evil stepsisters. I think that's a bit harsh. They're just utterly selfish and clueless. When it comes down to it, they represent uh, minor threats in comparison to the Lady Tremaine who appears to be trying to destroy her, using her own children as tools to do that. The, and that's this, epitomized when they shred the dress. Yeah, she's, she's basically, no, 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 I'm a woman of my word. Oh, but look. And then manages to somehow still destroy this girl. She just hits the release the hounds button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However, problems arise when Cinderella gets to the ball. For me, at least. It's, well, I mean, it's not exactly like I've been captivated the whole way through. The Tom and Jerry stuff with the mice is kind of amusing. With, with the challenge of the stepmother is, uh, is a visceral part of the film. And the, the, the sing sweet nightingale stuff with the bubbles is, is quite lovely to watch. But I'm not exactly thrilled to watch this one. Um, but when she gets to the ball... So this is love. So this is love. So this is what makes life I'm all aglow. And now I know. And now I know. The key to first guy she meets is the prince. They hardly exchange two words. They dance around for a bit. Then she runs away. And then the, the king sends his nine ring raids after her. It's the most <laughs> heavy-handed way of, of getting her back. And it's genuinely threatening. And I think they overshot Step the Mark on that in, in terms of... It, this is not a family I kind of want this girl to be um, uh, brought under the wing of. Uh, it's it's almost like she needs to be free of both of these. Now, it could simply be that Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes version of Cinderella has stuck itself in my head, so I kind of figure that the prince will go around chopping off the heads of everyone who displeases him. Um, but he's, he takes so little part in the story. He's the trophy, effectively. But it really wasn't until Sleeping Beauty, I think, that even one of the princes got a name. Hmm. Well, no, he's called Prince Charming in this, but they hardly even... Do they Who say it out loud? Is, charming? Is that a name or is that a title? I don't... 
it's, it's, it's billed as Prince Charming, but right. I think that, I don't know. He's, he's, just, he's in nothing. I thought it was like Lady Fair, Prince yeah. Charming. He's, he's a notch above that girly singing one in uh, the first, uh, in Snow White. Yeah. With his, oh, that, that guy. But um, He certainly doesn't have a character arc like Pinocchio or Dumbo does. But I mean, we're, we're at Tangled level now. So we've got like Flynn Rider as our male and, uh, male antagonist he kind of is actually now that i think about it he makes things happen uh, but as our male hero charming is a nothing a nobody and and i think just the whole cinderella getting into that side of things kind of the, the end of this film deflates the thing i like is the the uh, switcheroo with the uh, glass slipper where it smashes and like, i can imagine audiences in the 50s of little kids going <gasps> And then Cinderella brings out the other uh, slipper. Which, by the way, when everything else turns into just pumpkins and mice again, the slipper remains. Why? I mean, there's no physics to this magic. It just remains because it had to. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's from the magic that forgets about slippers. <laughs> I, I am inclined to agree with you in terms of the what I really don't like about this film is the non-entity that is the prince. Mm. Um, it's there is a little shred of, of them trying to give him some character by having his father wax lyrical about how irritating it is that he won't marry, mm. um, and that you know he's he's refusing all of these girls that are being placed in front of him, and he's you know holding out for his one true love. Um, but again, for me, that emphasizes the the part of fairy tales that I don't like, which is that these two get together because fate says they have to, because they are destined for one another. There is no, you, you don't, you see them dance off behind the curtain. What you don't get is what you do have entangled, which is they have a conversation. They find out they have things in common. She doesn't know he's the prince at that point. You could quite easily spare us a conversation in which we get to find out that he's quite a nice chap and she likes him. <laughs> you know, it's funny how we right. finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, you know, he, he barely speaks. His interaction is minimal and he, he, you know, literally might as well just be... A trophy. It sounds like I'm nitpicking, and I am really. This is this no, is not no, really a on, film for a 33 like, year old man. That's fair. That's fair. Of the film. But yeah, okay. Um, but it doesn't really matter because this film blew Disney up to monumental standards and allowed them to make Disneyland and allowed them to come back with a bang. This was the film for the moment. This was huge, and they absolutely had to make it. So whether I like it or not is I, neither here nor there. Yeah, ultimately, it's important because oh, yeah, the, yeah. the studio was four million in the hole mm. going into this film. If this How one did not make money, money. Yeah. then there would not be another one. That This would have been it. Now, it said that it made 85 million. I don't know how that... I think that's probably over time with the re-releases. Probably, probably. yeah. Maybe adjusted for inflation. But... Um, but yeah, that their margins were pretty low, and uh, it cost two point nine million. And they were preparing this for a long time while putting out the packages. It was kind of like they they were limping along, and and it was totally worth it, and a very shrewd decision. And so it was probably it was yeah. This is the second most important Disney film after Snow White, in terms of getting them to where they needed to go. So far, maybe it's just me. Does Lady Tremaine at all feel like sort of a weird ancestor to Mallory Archer? 
Maybe it's just I've been watching art too much. <laughs> oh, God, yes. But, like, now it's true. you've said that. Thank you, Dan. The secret is negative reinforcement. I'm uh, just getting that. About time. Ass. Her so voice, her delivery, the be. attitude, everything about it. Like, just put some alcohol in her hand Swing and give her... Gin. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then that completes it. It's the passive aggressiveness that does it. She's deadly yeah. like that. Uh, I heard uh, the uh, the earlier films described as, as a golden age. I don't know. I mean, this was on one of the Disney uh, making ofs. It's it wasn't a golden age. Snow White made a huge amount of money, and then Dumbo made a surprising amount because it was really cheap. The rest of them failed. How yeah, is that a golden I, age? At the time, it probably it. wouldn't have been regarded as one. It's probably kind of one of those in retrospect. These are all very well crafted and regarded as classics, yeah, and yeah, it started this whole thing. So, yeah, so golden now age may be overstating it a little. But yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. I don't know, but it, it, it does a terrible disservice to these films we're covering now because there's so many of them are huge triumphs, and yet it's like, oh, these are the lesser Disney's, not like Bambi. What's very likely, though, is you look at how, say, for example, the Marvel comics are defined in terms of Golden Age and Silver Age. When I look at, at what gets grouped into those categories, it's purely in terms of age. Mm. It's, it's just the oldest ones are Golden Age, the newer ones are Silver Age, and it just all I can think is Golden Anniversary and Silver Anniversary. It's just well, an age thing. In comic terms, it makes it's different because back in the Golden Age, that was when they made all their money because there was nothing else to do apart from go to Nickelodeons. Uh, and then in the Silver Age, there was more things to do and they still made money. And then afterwards, there were, the more things there are to do, the less money gets spent on comics. Well, maybe they're thinking about it in terms of, you know, these were the days when we were creating what was genuinely art. They were, mm. they were all hand-drawn. They, they were all the product of artistic individuals who were creating uh, very, very beautiful imagery. And That's I'm garbage. What, so the, so the, the Phantom is, is of a higher rank in artistic terms than Sandman. Utter bit. Uh, no, no, sorry, not the Golden Age Sandman, Neil Gaiman Sandman. Um, it's, no, no, no. I'm, I hate that. It is it is elitism from old men who I'm go, talking, oh, it, it was the Golden Age way back then. It's all about the money these days. I'm talking about the Disney interpretation. Oh, now, right, I see, I see. So. But no, I mean, well, that implies. I mean, somebody that, else on on the um, on the Sleeping Beauty um, DVD said, oh, it was uh, the the craftsmanship and artistic. Uh, it was just a, a feat which we'll never see again. Sorry, tangled right there. The, the, the craftsmanship and artistry and the absolutely beautiful, luminous, a perfect parallel in the modern day of, of Sleeping Beauty. But then when that statement was made, the last movie that Disney had produced was Bolt. So I think this guy was just despairing. What has become of my company? If, if you're looking back at a time when your studio was on the rise, uh, when everything that you did was at least critically considered to be magnificent and wonderful, and at the moment you're turfing out 3D animated... Animal features. ...non-entities, yeah. then you can see how they might look back on that and define that as their golden age. But it's such... That's, that's, that's pissing on Walt's dream. That's saying, oh, we'll never do that again. We'll never be artistic again. Well, it is a bit. We'll, but I mean, we'll never see the like of... I mean, somebody said in Walt Disney's eulogy, we will never see his like again. Surely he would want the world to see his like again. You would think. But there are people who refer to the golden age of 
Britain and the United Kingdom as being <laughs> the, the colonial empire. times when the we point were at shafting which we were being India. The most horrible to yeah. as many people in the world as we possibly could. Let's move on. We got a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Salagadoola, Menchikaboola, turns out the new live-action Cinderella movie is surprisingly remarkably good. 
correcting many of the issues we've just broached upon. We won't review it here because we'd end up slaloming back and forwards in time so you'd get all the progressive moves before sliding back to the 1950s next week. Because this series doubles, let's not forget, as both a history of animation in the 20th century and the perception of the princess. But rest assured, we'll be mentioning Cinderella 2015 again in due course. Next up, Alice in Wonderland. into an exciting, colorful, wonderfully new world as Walt Disney brings to glowing life the adventures of Alice in Wonderland based on Lewis Carroll's beloved story. There are wonderful tunes for your heart, wonderful thrills for your eyes as you share with Alice the wonderful things she sees, the wonderful friends she meets. Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the walrus and the carpenter, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, the Cheshire Cat, the White Rabbit, and many more. I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. No time to say hello. Goodbye. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. A very birthday. To me? To you. A very merry birthday. To me? For you. Little bird of butterflies kiss the tulips and the sun is like a toy balloon. So, Alice in Wonderland. Speaking of Victorian oddities, uh, 1951 this one was, so a year after Cinderella. And uh, how does one describe this one? Um, awesome. Okay, so Sharon, yeah, let's, should we start with Sharon? What do you like about this one? Because it's one of I absolutely adore this. Um, I've, I have been trying to pin down what it is that I like about it. Um, and it, I know you said not to jump around between the films too much, but I have to make the parallel with this. I one. have an excellent idea. Let's change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. My other uh, favourite of the early Disney films, um, which is 101 Dalmatians. Both of them are based on um, full-length books that I adored um, before I saw the Disney interpretations. Um, And both of them have a very uh, dreamlike style. And when I say dreamlike, I don't mean like, la, 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 once upon a dream. Um, I mean, literally, when you're asleep and things don't make any sense. Um, In Alice, it's uh, very much uh, a random, almost stream of consciousness uh, sequence of things happening and characters appearing. And there's never any attempt to explain it. Uh, And I really appreciate um sort of surrealist style art and uh, the comedy that i like tends to be quite absurdist and random and it just there's something about that this is happening and there's a logic in this moment but you can't really tie it to a logic of anything else that for some strange reason really really appeals to me mm-hmm. um with 101 dalmatians it's slightly different it's more of a a, a visual dreamlike thing but I, well, i'll come to that when we talk about that film um but then there's also the fact that uh, alice is when you when you break them apart piece by piece alice is the first female 
Disney character mm. who actually is a person in and of herself, other than um, what she represents and how she interacts with other people. She's a, she's a child for a start, so she doesn't have all of these responsibilities that are kind of hooked on to the other characters. Um, she has nobody that she has to be maternal towards. Um, she has nobody that she has to be um, particularly uh, deferential to. She's quite superior in kind of a, an irritating way in that she's she's obviously um a very uh what's the word um child who knows more than they ought to know precocious precocious yes thank you she's a very precocious child um she actually reminds me a little bit of lisa simpson mm. oh, um, yeah. she's uh although she's kind of she doesn't like the books her introductory scene is she's she's learning academic stuff which girls previous to that weren't really shown as having anything to do with she's not domestic in the slightest she has this incredibly vivid imagination that takes her to a million and one places that we've never seen before purple trees and queens made out of playing cards a lot of internal conflict especially Absolutely. if you consider that everything she's experiencing is her own dream yeah um, and she's a smart ass she was a little blonde girl and she was a smart ass and frankly that was me at that age so <laughs> I loved Alice. I thought she was fab. Cats and rabbits would reside in fancy little houses and be dressed in shoes and hats and trousers in a world of my own. All the flowers would have very extra special powers. They would sit and talk to me for hours. When I'm lonely in a world of my own There'd be new birds Lots of nice and friendly howdy-do birds Everyone would have a dozen bluebirds Within that world of my own I could listen to a babbling brook and hear a song that I could understand I keep wishing it could be that way Because my world would be a wonderland Dan? There's something about watching this that makes me feel the same way as when I'm watching Adventure Time. Mm, mm. There's something yes. about... There's something in my brain that gets always a little bit stressed out watching Adventure Time, and I think it is just the absurdity of it. Like, my brain's trying really hard to keep up, and I feel the same thing watching this. But that kind of feels appropriate to the story, too, because Alice is supposed to start slowly getting overwhelmed by it. Like, the whole point is that, all right, you can one can have too much nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> all these crazy sequences back-to-back -back are really memorable and entertaining, and I love them, even though it starts stressing me out as I go. I don't know. The movie definitely does not ever let you get bored. It does not allow it. Just from sequence to sequence to sequence, there's always some new weird thing going on and entertaining in a new way, whether it's just a smart aleck caterpillar or like a bad hatter and a hare who are out of their minds and super entertaining. Oh, it's, it's a really enjoyable watch. One thing we get a lot of in this film, uh, almost more than any other, uh, is the... Um, the, the crazily surreal backgrounds of Mary Blair. Uh, you, 
Dan, you aware of uh, Mary Blair? Yeah, yeah. She's uh, responsible largely for the backgrounds for this and the next feature we'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's she very did a lot stylized. Of the, yeah, she started a lot in, in the um, uh, package films. So uh, she, she, she got a lot from her trip to South America, a lot of the vivid colors that we see here and the, um, the, the way that the... Uh, that the framing of uh, and it's, it's almost like Alice is in a variety of multicolored cages. If you watch it, there's everything sort of closed around her, and it's it's got a, a, a there's there's a freedom to the frame, but it's only within that frame, and it's almost like Alice can never venture out of that. If that makes sense, it's like she's moving from picture to picture. Mm, yeah, this is the film that feels most like a ride of any of the Disney. Yeah. so far it just feels like a big adventure going from interesting place to interesting place it also feels the most to me like a video game hmm Ooh, this yeah. idea that you have here's this scene and here's this challenge and you have to get past this challenge in order to move on to the next one I'm Press not X to get frustrated and leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I feel about uh, Alice in Wonderland now. I've uh, for, for many many years I've been like, oh, they're never going to make a decent version of Alice in Wonderland, and especially after the 2010 version came out with its erroneous name. It should be called something other than Alice in Wonderland. You wouldn't bring out a sequel to The Wizard of Oz and call it The Wizard of Oz. Um, I hate the Tim Burton version. I, I really enjoyed reading the uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland through the Looking Glass as a child. I'm not sure what I'd make of them now. That's the thing. I think what we'll probably end up doing is uh, I'll read them both to Lyra back to back and then we'll do a comparative of this one and uh, the, the Burton version and see if if there's still a film to be made here based on what happens. Because, I mean, most of her Looking Glass related stuff has never been committed to film. The books seem more severe. They've rounded the edges a lot more and made everything a bit more cuddly and a bit more uh, fun. It, it, in the books, sometimes it feels like a child's uh, interpretation of being in a, a lunatic asylum. Everybody she meets is obstinate and insane and shouts things at her that um, either don't make sense at all or are just incredibly rude. And it's, it's quite scary. Um, but the fact that Alice is able to rationalize with herself rather than freaking out gets you through the story as a child. See, a lot of that I interpreted as being um, simply a child's, a smart child's take on mm. the world, that people are trying to tell her what to do and force her in certain directions and putting yeah. obstacles in her way. And like you say, she rationalizes everything. She puts um, imagery onto it that to her makes sense. So hence why in Through the Looking Glass, everything's interpreted as sort of this chess game because yeah. that was the last thing she was doing before she fell asleep. Yeah. Um, and I think that that dreamlike logic about it um in spite of the fact that there's also this dreamlike illogic that um uh that clash um is is part of what really draws me into this and just just makes me think anything can happen as long as it's filtered through alice's comprehension mm. and as long as that remains consistent and you believe that this is something that alice could interpret it works and one thing that actually took me by surprise, because I've never really warmed to it too much before, is Ed Wynn as the Mad Hatter. This time around, for some reason, I found him hilarious. He's awesome. His whole, the whole thing about this watch is precisely two days slow is brilliant. <laughs> the natural remedy to this to be to fill the watch with jam, butter, shove two spoons in there, mustard, mustard, 
Don't let's be silly. That's and his favorite, my favorite line of his. Is yeah, that one? It's great. And um, it, possibly just because now he reminds me of the Candy King. Oh, yeah. God, yes, of course. Yeah, that's very Have some candy. Definitely what they were kind of going for with the Candy King. Uh, but see, the Candy King didn't even become alive for me, Dan, until you sent me that Riddler tryout. And now suddenly I love <laughs> Candy King and Mad Hatter. So cheers for that one. You bet. Look, let's talk about that last puzzle that you cl- that you just fell through. Um, it's cute and kind of admirable in some sort of way that you've done this whole take over for grandpa thing. You you put on the cowl like it was yours and now you're just detectiving your little ass off this way and that all over Gotham. It, it's cute. It's cute. Um here's the thing though. Uh if you and if you want to just Sherlock your way up and down Gotham, that, that's fine, Cupcake. You you do what you need to do. But Sherlock, you are not currently. You're you're doing a Magoo level thing right now, and I am gonna need you to step it up because that last puzzle that was an easy one. I I wasn't even giving you anything hard. That shouldn't have taken a day. That shouldn't have taken ha- that shouldn't have taken an hour. As I understand it, I believe uh, the actor for the Mad Hatter, like yeah, he was recording the video reference for that whole sequence was, yeah. for the animators, and that's pretty much the best audio take they got from him when he was just ad-libbing and being yeah. goofy and making stuff up. So I think for him, they're just using that ad-libbed yeah. kind of film studio recording When audio. he just read it off the script, it, didn't, it seemed more flat. It didn't it seem quite as uh, naturally chaotic. Yeah. So what we see throughout these movies specifically is when they started doing a lot of reference-based footage and doing a lot of filming the actors and then not so much tracing but using them as a very close reference guide to how to animate the, uh, the characters on screen, it's performance capture. It's what we now know as performance capture and is used by so few studios in that capacity. But when it's, it's used right and with Andy Serkis involved, it's, I hasten to use the M word, but uh, it's extremely special. And it had been something they'd been doing to an extent on previous films as well. Even as early as Snow White, there was a good bit of uh, uh, live action shot just for reference. And the animators didn't particularly enjoy having to work that way. But but still, yeah, it is. uh, I would rotoscoping essentially is the the performance capture equivalent for 2D animation. And what the the uh, animators would do is they wouldn't they wouldn't be following it or tracing it literally because then it would look floaty and terrible. It but, would look like rotoscope stuff. Consult your Ralph Bakshi with Lord of the Rings for what that would look like. Yeah, it just it looks weird and it doesn't come off looking quite right. It doesn't feel like it has weight. Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Yeah. But if you stylize it just right, if you uh, make it feel a little more right for the character, if you work on clarifying kind of the silhouette of how the character looks, then uh, it can be a very useful tool. I mean, even in 3D, if we're not shooting motion capture a lot of the time, we'll still probably film ourselves doing something just so we can see the yeah. body mechanics of what's actually going on for an action. So, uh, it, and having actual actors doing that for you can be quite useful and give you a lot of really cool ideas. So, 
Right. Well, it, it does make a lovely kind of sense because if you, I, I suppose, if you're animating something that is supposed to be extremely stylized, that's the point when you can really draw it out of your own head because it's it's what your imagination is is creating for you, and you need to be able to replicate that as closely as possible. Mm. But if you're trying to do something where the movement looks like real movement and the fabric flow looks like real fabric flow, you need something to work off um, because otherwise you're having to remember all of that, and it's it, it's not something that you can necessarily recreate accurately purely from your own brain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the fact is, miss, we planted the white roses by mistake. And the queen, she likes some bread. If she's so white instead, she'd raise a fuss. And each of us would quickly lose his head. Goodness. Since this is a thought we dread, we painted the roses red. Let me help you. Painting the roses red. We're painting the roses red. Don't tell the queen what you have seen or say. That's what we said. But we're painting the roses red. Yes, painting the roses red. Not pink, not green, not aquamarine. We're painting the roses red. Despite all the long years of thought and effort, the film went with a lukewarm response at the box office and was a sharp disappointment in its initial release, earning an estimated 2.4 million at the US box office in 1951. It cost $3 million. So how did this advance Disney? It didn't. It actually set them back some way, especially since this followed their triumph of Cinderella. It was like, ah, we can still make mistakes at this point. Um, it may have wrong-footed them to a degree because uh, it took them a while to come back from this. See how the trouble you've started? Really, I didn't think that. Ah, but that's the point. If you don't think, you shouldn't talk. Clean cup, clean cup. Move down, move down, move down. But I still haven't Move down, move down, move down, move down. And now, my dear, as you were saying... Oh, yes. I was sitting on the riverbank with, uh, with you-know-who. I do. (laughs) I mean my C-A-T. Tea? Just half a cup if you don't mind. Come, come, my dear. <laughs> don't you care for tea? Why, yes, I'm very fond of tea. But... If you don't care for tea, you could at least make polite conversation. Well, I've been trying to ask you. I have an excellent idea. Let's change the subject. <laughs> Why is a raven like a writing desk? Riddles? Let me see now. Why is a raven like a writing desk? I beg your pardon. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Why is a what? Never. She's stark raven mad. But, but it's your silly riddle. You just said... Don't get excited. How about a nice cup of tea? Have a cup of tea indeed. Well, I'm sorry, but I just haven't the time. The time. The time. Who's got the time? No, 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 no. No time, no time, no time. Hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late. The White Rabbit. Oh, I'm so late. I'm so very, very late. Well, no wonder you're late. Why, this clock is exactly two days slow. Two days slow? Of course you're late. <laughs> My goodness. We'll have to look into this. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. I see what's wrong with it. Why, this watch is full of wheels. Oh, my bird watch. Oh, my wheels. The springs. But, 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 but. Butter, of course, it needs some butter. 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 But, but, butter? 
butter. Oh, thank you, butter. Yes, that's fine. Oh, no, 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 no. You'll get crumbs in it. Oh, this is the very best butter. What are you talking about? Tea? Tea? Oh, I never thought of tea, of course. No. Tea. No, not tea. Sugar? Sugar, two spoons. Just two spoons, thank you, yes. Please, be careful. Jam? Jam, I forgot all about no, jam. No, Just show you what a place to do. Mustard? Mustard, yes, but mustard? Don't let's be silly. Lemon, that's different. That's there. That should do it. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my now following that show we both read alice's adventures in wonderland and through the looking glass which i personally prefer of the two to lyra they're quite patchy to read through in this day and age and alice is actually pretty dislikable in the first one but it was again quite remarkable how much of the two disney's animated version packed in and even in many cases improved on in terms of memorable gags and delivery in particular catherine beaumont as alice makes the otherwise clueless pretentious and scatterbrained girl distinctly more charming than as written I still wish someone would just go ahead and do a straight film of Through the Looking Glass that would really stick in the mind of the general public, unlike that wretched, wobbly CGI bumfest that Tim Burton dribbled out a few years ago. Henry Selick, director of Coraline and James and the Giant Peach, with his stop-motion colleagues at Leica, seemed like the ideal choice. Next up, Peter Pan. Let's talk about its strengths first, shall we? If you have some, yes. Oh, God, I was hoping you would have some. (laughs) Uh, Quick, we need Daniel Floyd. I have odd things I liked about it when I was a kid. Um, But they have lost a lot of their weight now. Examples, what did you like when you were a kid? Um... Because I saw this at the cinema, my uh, uh, parents took us to see it unexpectedly, and I was I was kind of bored. I got to admit, you know, this is I'd already seen Ghostbusters at this point. This this yeah. was weak source. I I quite liked the the look of it. I suppose this was this was probably one of the first Disney's I saw, mm. um, and we had uh, a load of Ladybird Disney books, so I was already pretty familiar with the the characters and the um things like the lost boys in their little animal costumes and um uh i think i probably had the same book yeah um and i quite liked wendy's nightdress at the time it's a bit now, but um (laughs) the bit at the end where she goes it's okay father i'm ready to grow up now no conflict like there ever was any well, no, a dad just turns around and says, oh, no, I was a bit hasty. Don't worry about it. 
Brilliant. So whatever he said in the heat of the moment, shouting and screaming and hollering and dragging the dog out by the neck, um, has all passed. Oh, hang on. That's a strength. That's a strength. Uh, the bit where he uh, talks to Nana and says, oh, come on, Nana, and it shows that he's not such a bad sort. That's a good sort of little like, cinematic shorthand to the kids. He has to present a certain image to his children to be the disciplinarian, but in reality his heart is breaking. That's yeah, a sweet moment. It is, but the fact that he then comes back from the party and is like, you know, never mind everything that I said earlier, he's technically being an inconsistent parent. Yeah, that's that. What are those two things that children don't like? Um, inconsistency and emotional inaccessibility. He is a double qualifier. Yeah, and it could it's be scary argued. when somebody acts one way and then suddenly acts another, just turns on a dime. That's that's like a crazy person to a child. Yeah, and of course it could be argued that you know put this next to Mary Poppins, which obviously the, there are parallels that are introduced to the Peter Pan story as a result of Mary Poppins. Mm. Um, where and obviously the 2003 version draws more deliberate parallels absolutely but this idea of the father figure at this particular point in history being if if the mother is the one who provides the children with unconditional love and never questions <coughs> their um uh, you know what I'm thinking of, don't you? Yes, I do, until my mother committed suicide in 1984. Um, That's from uh, Best in Show, folks. It's, yes. uh, it's the great Jane Lynch. Indeed. Um, but yeah, the idea that, that your mother is the one who loves you and adores you and, and sort of builds you up to have faith in yourself and, and have complete confidence in everything you are and who and what I you have confidence in me. Um, and then your father... I'm just looking at pictures by... of Julie Andrews here. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you carry on. Um, and then your father grabs you by the scruff of the neck and socialises you. Uh, in other words, teaches you to hide all of that. King and... Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men indeed sorry so yeah come on streets i like the bit where they're in the home underground and the pond on top sort of stops in the ceiling so it's like a there's a floating pool above them that's neatly captured i like tinkerbell's design oh yeah tinkerbell's lovely she, I mean, she's got more depth than both Peter and Wendy. She, she goes through more does, of a journey. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah she, um, she reacts with... Uh, well, it, it's, it's all expressiveness because she can't talk like Julia Roberts, so she has yeah. to express everything. Um, uh, not like Ludwig Signer, who does it because she's a mime from Cirque de Clune. Uh, but um, uh, she, she is expressed by the animators who make her, you know, super cute, but this sort of devilish little pixie thing and and it, it's it's no wonder she's still iconic and in her own movies and and she in fact became uh, emblematic of the disney logo too so even though you got the when you wish upon a star from pinocchio um i want since this was actually supposed to be the second film from uh, walt disney um it's tinkerbell doing the fairy pixie dust stuff and she's also hot which helps and our weaknesses it's bland it's soporific. And when I say it's soporific, I can't watch this film without nodding off. 
It's around about the time when they get to the Lost Boys. Everything is totally inconsequential at that point. I actually like the beginning more because there's more grounding in uh, family matters and, and you can sort of, you can deconstruct what's going on a bit more. Once they get to the island, there's no deconstruction to be had. It's just a kid's adventure. And it's not that much of an adventure. And 90% of films that come out now are kids' adventures, and they're so much more impressive than this. It's like the other day we were watching The Spy Who Loved Me, Lara and I. I was trying to show her a classic Bond just to say, look, this is what James Bond is like. She was bored out of her skull. And I thought, there is nothing, nothing to appeal to a child today about Roger Moore's James Bond. Nothing. You know, it's, it's an action movie, but it's so creaky and pathetic and embarrassing by today's standards for kids. It's, it's a great history lesson once you're old enough to really, you know, grasp that it is a piece of, of, of the times. But, uh, you know, in, in comparison to the modern day stuff, you can't hold a candle to it. And Peter Pan, likewise, is just a consequence-free adventure of which are ten a penny now with the latest in cutting-edge computer graphics to at least keep you dazzled. Also, here's another thing. It's stupid, and there's goofball humor, and it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon, but it's not really funny, so it's not as funny as a Looney Tunes cartoon. And I thought, well, Emperor's New Groove's got goofball Looney Tunes humor. Yes, but it is funny, and Emperor's New Groove actually does have drama, and pathos, and consequences, and arcs, and characters. The second star to the right shines in the night for you To tell you that the dreams you plan really can come true The second star to the right shines with a light so rare And if it's Neverland you need, this light will live Should we go with the positives on Peter Pan before I lay into it? <laughs> it? It should be mentioned that Alice in Wonderland did catch on in the 60s for some in reason. In time. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, there were, once there were everybody reasons. was high, it went down a storm. <laughs> yeah, so this was the, more of a slow release thing. Yeah, yeah the, and by the 70s and 80s, everyone else started kind of embracing it as being, actually, this is very good. Yeah. So, uh, And it. I also want to bring up the point that um, the fact that Catherine Beaumont, who voiced Alice could still do this teenage version of her voice convincingly in her 60s for Kingdom Hearts is yeah, super badass. I checked that. I was like, did they just get bits of her voice from the film? Nope. She actually did re-record it as a 60-year-old woman. That is an astonishing voice actress. That's awesome. Yeah. She had the interesting link. She is also Wendy. And she also did Kingdom Hearts stuff as Wendy. Yep. It's captivating. Exhilarating. Jubilating and guaranteed to lift your spirits. You 
Walt Disney's Peter Pan. You'll never, never forget the magic. Rated G. Coming soon to a theater near you. So Peter Pan. Go for it. Anybody who wants to say nice things about Peter Pan. I like Tinkerbell. I like Tinkerbell as well. Oh, the whole Marilyn Monroe thing? Hearsay, it's actually not Marilyn, based on Marilyn Monroe. She was around in 1953, but she hadn't had a major starring role yet. I actually like a lot of the characters. Like Hook and Smee are, are an awesome villain-henchman combo. Like, loads of personality. And Peter kind of has a lot of boyish charm, too, despite a lot of youthful immaturity. Uh, I also feel like this is maybe one of the most like thematically interesting Disney stories so far, probably just because of the source material, but because like Disney output up until this point hasn't had a lot of complex themes to it. It's mostly just been fairy tales or simple morality stories. And the Peter Pan story kind of raises all these questions about accepting adulthood versus clinging to childhood. Like it, it's hero is in a state of permanent arrested development on his little Island and both in kind of appealing and also unappealing ways. I mean, Neverland seems entirely constructed to cater to his exact mental age. <laughs> like, uh, he, he has the fun and conflict with pirates without any permanent consequences ever. He's got mermaids to flirt with and his adolescent understanding of sexuality. He's got a bunch of other boys to pal around with. The island basically just seems to exist for him. And which, uh, it just makes it kind of interesting to think about in terms of the in terms of the themes and i wonder if i haven't actually seen the uh original play i wonder if that's a lot stronger i wonder if this kind of got rounded out and softened as disney versions tend to do they did have to trim several bits of it uh well, well major question before i go at it uh, have you seen the 2003 version with uh, jason isaacs and jeremy sumter i did i remember liking it a lot okay uh sharon do you want to say anything positive about peter pan <laughs> Um, everything positive that I have to say about Peter Pan is about the story, not yeah. about what Disney did with it. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they trimmed out a couple of fairly crucial bits regard like that. There's a major part of the stage play where, uh, Tinkerbell, um, has to prevent Peter from drinking poison accidentally and drinks it herself and then dies. And, um, to bring her back, the audience is asked to, proclaim that they believe in fairies. Walt didn't think that would work with a cinema audience, so Hook sends Peter a bomb, and it almost kills him, but doesn't. And then that's left kind of like, well, did that do anything or not? And then Wendy jumps off the plank and Peter rescues her, and there's no... that They never really address what happened there. It's not a huge deal. I think at its core, this isn't actually too bad at all, a version of, of Peter Pan. It's just that the 2003 version is so, so much better... And I think I'm probably more in its corner because nobody ever recognizes the 2003 version as being so, so much better. Captain Hook in this version is a buffoon. The depiction of Native Americans is so appallingly racially and culturally ignorant as to derail the whole film for me. The What Makes a Red Man Red song being one of the worst aspects of it. I, I am actually just mortified with offense uh, for this uh, on behalf of the entire Native American community. I, I really need to bring up a rant here, don't I? Um, hold on a second. I think I actually did write a rant. If you bear with me for a moment. You guys carry on talking about Peter Pan for a second while I try and find this. Let's see. 
I think one of the biggest issues for me is how nothing of a character Wendy is. It seems almost unkind to compare and contrast it with the 2003 version, but they they deepened her character so much and, and gave her so many um, intersecting motivations and uh, presented how torn she was between growing up and staying a child. Yeah. And I found that completely fascinating. And Wendy in this version is there there is absolutely no question that she is Mumsy Mum. She's she's yeah, she's maternal already. It I mean the the yes, there's that whole thing about she doesn't want to move out of the nursery, but there's not really any given reason why. She likes being in the nursery because she gets to read stories to her brothers. And when she goes to Neverland, she reads stories to the um the Lost Boys and she gets to be their mother. And that it just it, it, if you consider that the whole point of Peter and the whole um, examination of how he is refusing point blank to grow up is thrown into sharp relief by how he interacts with Wendy, if she's nothing, that element of him is nothing too, which means that you've stripped out a good portion of the strength of that story. In fact, if, if, if I could argue that Alice in Wonderland and 101 Dalmatians are my favourites because um, they are, whilst not completely and utterly faithful adaptations, certainly very sort of almost spiritually sound adaptations of books that I love, of, of um, you know, full-length stories that I love, that Peter Pan undermines a lot of the story that I, I enjoy is possibly one of the reasons why I don't like it. Well, a mother, a real mother, is the most wonderful person in the world. She's the angel voice that bids you good night, kisses your cheek, whispers, sleep tight. You're mother. Helping hand that guides you along, whether you're right, whether you're wrong, you're mother and mine, you're mother and mine. Right. Um, this is what I actually put on the forum. Things that I consider to be downright horrible in this film. The portrayal of Native Americans. It's easy to pass this off as just harmless ignorance like the crows in Dumbo. But here are some pointers. The African people bought forcibly to America as slaves were not systematically wiped out in various acts of genocide. While I in no way want to diminish the unbelievable suffering these people went through, their integration into society took centuries and still has a long way to go. But they finally got a president. So we're on the right track there. Two, the actors portraying the crows in Dumbo were African-American. Clearly, their dialogue, while street ebonic for the time, still felt authentic. Candy Candido, who voiced the Indian chief, was as white as they come. This makes it something like a blackface routine. I believe they call this red face. 
especially if you're singing a song, What Makes a Red Man Red. Number three, the Indians in this speak like horrible amusements for ignorant Caucasians. There were a lot of Westerns at the time, and the more culturally unaware productions had them speak in this manner. We um, want heap big fire water. Think back to the future 1953 here in terms of boneheaded America in general. The story about what makes a red man red, something to do with him blushing, them is rather akin to asking why Chinese people are yellow. It's fucking appalling. Basically, Disney, you don't get to do this. White people, you don't get to laugh at this. So yes, this film is not a favorite. Why does he ask you how? Why does he ask you how? assessment of the crows in Dumbo, the lead of which is named Jim Crow. Folks outside the US won't be so familiar with the term, but it's actually relating to post-reconstruction laws that enforced segregation all the way up until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Basically, if you've been following New Century, it was a little after the time I'm writing. In our timeline, the US government decided that though former slaves were now free, they should not be seen as equal. So while in retrospect the crows are actually pretty positive characters, their depiction and cultural associations put them closer to, as Bob Chipman said, the punchline to a gag rather than actual characters with agency in their own right. However, the Indians in Peter Pan, all played by white actors, spout a litany of made-up gibberish directly about their own culture. One that, as we established, was nearly wiped off the planet by white America. If there was ever a need for respect and clarity, this scenario was it. And the era, 1950s, simply didn't call for that level of sensitivity. Instead, it's just goofy and deeply ignorant. And it remains, for me, the most abiding misstep in the studio's celebrated career. No, it's not like I loved this film all the way up to the 2003 Peter Pan. I was just kind of indifferent to this film. I saw it as a kid, wasn't particularly enamored of it. Then the 2003 version was like, now this is a Peter Pan film I can really get with. And one aspect that's redressed in that is Native American actors in the Native American roles. So Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I understand that this was not uncom- terribly uncommon in a lot of media at the time, and that to an extent, not 
nearly to this extreme, but that it's even a bit of an element present in the source material as well, but it still makes it super uncomfortable to watch now and really makes it a lot harder to, it makes it a lot harder to like what is, what works about the movie because it is just a big chunk right in the middle that just, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, if you're adapting a work that is now antiquated or uh, has culturally, uh, with a word, culturally insensitive material in it, it is your duty when you're adapting it for your time and for time going forwards to work out a way to put that across uh, sensitively. Now, they did it as sensitively as people in 1953 did anything, which is to say, not very. Everything that I love about the 2003 version isn't present in this or is watered down in this. And everything that I hate about this isn't in the 2003 version. So really what I'm, I'm doing here is making a, an unfair comparison to something that was made 50 years later. But then again, Alice in Wonderland is better than the Tim Burton version. So it swings around about. Anyway, um, anything more to be said about Peter Pan? Oh, I, I hate the Captain Hook, like, running across the water like Wiley e. Coyote stuff. There was quite a lot of, in this era, of Disney imitating Tom and Jerry with uh, Lucifer and the, and the mice. And uh, Wiley e. Coyote, do you notice Wiley e. Coyote somehow managed to get in to the sword and the stone? He's actually in it. He's a wolf, but he's in it. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of. Um, I, I, I love Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner and stuff. Uh, I just don't think... Captain Hook running across the water going, Smee! While this crocodile chases him and bites his bottom. It's just tedious to watch. I don't know. I actually kind of like the uh, more slapsticky. I know it is more lighthearted, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it is better, obviously, than I'm sure is what was more a more a serious portrayal in both the source material and obviously in the 2003 film that followed it. Yeah. But for what it is and for the story that it's in and what it's presenting. Like I find the caricatures they've created of captain hook and Smee in general to be a pretty fun little villain combo. Oh, I do like the, um, yo ho, yo ho pirates life for me. So that's great. Is that in it? Actually, I don't know. Think it did is I in dream that? that? I did. Yeah. Dream that. <laughs> <laughs> The thing I liked was the thing that wasn't in the movie. Pirate's life is a wonderful life for roving over the sea. Give me a career as a buccaneer. It's the life of a pirate for me. Oh, the life of a pirate for me. Pirate's life is a wonderful life. They never bury your bones. For when it's all over, a jolly sea rover drops in on his friend Davy Jones. Oh, his very good friend, Davy Jones. <laughs> Hang on a second, I'll just check that. Yo, oh, yo. See, I thought they exported that to the ride. Um, I think it might have been created for the ride. There was, there was a pirate song, but it wasn't that one. And it sounded kind of similar. It had a, like, prolonged... Whoa. The pirate's life is a wonderful life. That's the one. No, hang on. I never, never, never think about that. That's the dodo. These are all blurring together. You'll find But live every minute for all that is in it. The life of a pirate is 
it's not it's not anything part of Peter Pan. So, but it would have been cool had it been in Peter Pan. A nice yeah. little this is our Disney pirate song. It totally would have fit. But no, bloody hell! Why did I imagine that? Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, Dan. I, I don't mean to. to, to uh, you and I have uh, differing um, perspectives on the benefits of slapstick in this one. I mean, I love it in an Emperor's New Groove. Love it. Oh yeah, the Emperor's. And New I'm Groove. not saying that. Uh, I don't know. It feels like this is a lighter as a much lighter hearted sort of a uh, presentation of the story as it is so that I don't know that a more grounded, what captain hook actually mm. is meant to be would have fit. I think it would have been kind of totally weird and inconsistent, which is not to say that it's, it's hard to better come back or worse. Jason it's Isaacs. Just, Imagine basically he plays it much like Lucius Malfoy. Oh yeah. I mean, I, yeah. and what I remember of that was really enjoyable. I liked it a lot. I don't know if it would have necessarily fit in this movie, of and course not, no. nor, not, and also not to say that this portrayal is itself better or worse. I think I think the portrayal of Captain Hook fits quite well and is very entertaining for this Peter Pan movie. Also, Bobby Driscoll, the uh, kid who plays Peter, annoying little gobshite. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that didn't help. I can't like him; he's horrible. So, yeah, not a fan of this one. I think one of the things that I did like about it is very much a retrospective thing, but there were this was the first one that I really started consciously seeing um, elements that had been used in later Disney films. Like, for example, the crocodile mm-hmm. is basically um, Lewis. Yeah. Uh, in, from, uh, um, from Princess, Princess and, the Frog. and the Frog, yeah. He's also uh, the crocodile in... Um, uh, the Robin Hood, voiced by the guy who played the Indian chief in this. Oh yeah, yeah. See that that voice is great coming out of a crocodile. I see no upset crocodiles anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, archers, I... start your arrows. That's an awesome voice. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It's just that it shouldn't be coming out of a uh, yeah an American chief. <laughs> Sorry to bring everyone down, but genocide. So, <laughs> and it does need to be stressed again. Tinkerbell is pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. You know, Tinkerbell is actually kind of wonderful. Sorry. After all of that shit um, from me, Tinkerbell is is fairly. Um, she, she's got this one. The fact that, uh, like the with the original stage play, she uh, communicates in bell ringing sounds as opposed to actually talking like Julie Roberts. <laughs> One thing that I really like about her is the fact that she gets to be a um, a hero character and who a bad has girl. exactly she has vaguely unsympathetic behavioural traits, mm. um, but she's not punished for those. She's it's not like um, you know because she is if, technically she's of punished Wendy. for her good behaviour when she's yeah. a hero when she's she's selfless for Peter, but we don't really get to see that. Yeah. Also, it's it's a, an exercise in visual storytelling and being able to actually communicate with bell ringing and actually just the facial expression and the body language of this one character, exactly how she's feeling. Although I did love the comment in the, um, I think it was for the Jungle Book behind the scenes material, where they said that basically the reason that you got to be so good at um, purely visual storytelling as a Disney animator, particularly if you were a storyboarder, was that Walt didn't like to read things. <laughs> so if, if you couldn't tell your idea purely visually, it wasn't going in. Never smile at a crocodile. No, you can't get friendly with a crocodile don't be taken in 
in by his welcome grin. He's imagining how well you'd fit within his skin. <laughs> Never smile at a crocodile. Never tip your hat and stop to talk a while. Never run, walk away, say good night, not good day. Clear the island, never smile at Mr. Crocodile. You may very well be well bred. Lots of etiquette in your head. But there's always some special case, time or place, to forget etiquette. For example, one positively must not wear a pleased expression on his countenance when confronted with that large lizard-like amphibious reptile who has long jaws, armored skin, and webbed feet, and who is known as the crocodile. It has been discovered that one simply cannot cherish an amicable or trustworthy relationship with the aforementioned species. In addition, it is mandatory that one does not become irresistibly drawn into the erroneous belief that the lateral awkward extension of his lips means that you are entirely welcome. It is much more reasonable to assume that he is contemplating how you would look in a lizard suit. His. <laughs> Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Crocodile. You sort of pick up on quite what a, uh, would you say control freak regarding Walt? He, 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 he knew what he liked, he knew what he didn't like, and it sometimes took a lot of convincing from some, from some very assertive people to get round him on some things. I, I don't think control freak is a... a, a an overly exaggerated way of putting it, no. Overlord? Megalomaniac. <laughs> creative director. That's the same thing, isn't it? Creative it, it, genius. It can very easily be, yes. Overlord. Yeah. Again, this is actually behavior I'd kind of like to see encouraged because of what he managed to achieve. If you go to his Wikipedia page, just looking down the reference points to just click on what he's achieved in his life, you just down and down, and your finger gets tired looking at everything he's done. He's Andrew Ryan. Just see, he is a great man. But it is possible to be a great creative director without being awful to people. Yeah, somehow Lasseter manages it. And I, I mean, actually, Dan, dude, is, is Lasseter a nice guy? He's actually, yeah, quite a nice guy. But I mean, like a lot of a good creative leader will generally push you to do your best and beyond that like they won't and it's a way that they often kind of describe Walt's uh, how Walt handled things as well where it's not that he will he will like push you and push you and slave driver like no do better do better this isn't good enough he will just set a bar pretty high and you and you will say that's a pretty high bar Walt and Walt will say it's like I think you can do it Basically, his faith, he puts faith in you that you can do this. And because he sees, he's able to see the ability to do this and the people he has under him. And it often did turn out that they pushed and fought really hard and they could do it. Mm-hmm. And, it resulted, and it results in good work. That's generally what a good creative leader does, I think. Yeah, so, see, that, and, that does sound generally positive. That We're not talking James Cameron throwing things at people because <laughs> they didn't do what they were told. It, I do hear a surprising amount about like great creative wonderful people they always seem to have some story about throwing chairs so, like you know, Shigeru Miyamoto and it's a, and Walt Disney I'm sure threw a chair in his day mm. yeah uh, intense ambitious people I expect you definitely do get some control freaking and slave driving now and then it's it's not going to be a grandfather Walt all the time that's absolutely for sure yeah but uh yeah. But you can't get that long list of achievements without the ambition. 
You don't just accidentally achieve all those things. Not without throwing a few chairs. Yeah. I would say Peter Jackson doesn't appear to throw chairs, but that's beside the point. <laughs> he has somebody do that for him. <laughs> yes. Fran throws chairs for him. <laughs> no, he actually, if you, if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, there is, uh, I can't remember her name, but she's that woman who basically, oh, God, you, she basically, yes. you have to get all the extras in order, get everyone, but you have to be loud and angry and uh, 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 boisterous and, um, assertive and everyone just has to jump into line because otherwise the director has to do that and it kills his creativity because he's too busy getting angry. Yeah. The worst, the worst I can see Peter Jackson doing is kind of like Tommy was so tipping over his little director's chair. And like, <laughs> That's a terrible image. Just like running along the shelf and slowly nudging the CDs off. It's like, it's just like too nice. He's really mad, but it's like, Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they broke their promise and I don't care anymore <laughs> but Peter how do we get to Neverland fly of course fly it's easy you think of a wonderful thought any happy little thoughts uh huh like toys at Christmas, sleigh bells, snow? Yep. Watch me now. Here I go. It's easier than pie. He can fly! He can fly! He flew! Now you try. I'll think of a mermaid lagoon. Oh, underneath a magic moon. I'll think I'm in a pirate's cave. I think I'll be an Indian brain. Now everybody try. One, two, three. We can fly, we can fly, we can fly! Now, the original ending was ignored by Disney until the sequel, the 2002 straight-to-video Return to Neverland. It was filmed for the 2003 version, but was left on the cutting room floor. And it had Peter Pan revisit Wendy in adulthood, he is shocked to see her old and useless to a child, but her young daughter Jane is the perfect age to go off on a new adventure. Both Return to Neverland and Hook resurrect the old murderous rascal for Peter to once again lock blades with, implying a battle that will rage on and on, with Peter never losing, but Hook never staying dead, like some pirate Jason Voorhees. I would be intrigued to see a new ongoing series of movies that further explore both Peter and Hook's arrival in Neverland, as seen in the quite good sci-fi channel miniseries, Neverland. Notably, this saw Bob Hoskins return to the role of Smee 21 years after playing him in Hook. Since Bob died in 2014, as well as Richard Briers the year before, we are distinctly Smee-free right now, and we need a new one. And actually, I do have to add an addendum to that previous statement that I pointed out that uh, Peter returns to a Neverland free of pirates. Uh, He doesn't in the Disney version, uh, having seen it again. Hook, you know, is chased off by the crocodile, uh, but he doesn't die. And the pirates all get just thrown overboard, but they can probably get back on their ship once Peter Pan drops it off again with the Lost Boys. And I suppose that, that does sort of return the balance to normal. In fact, technically, it's... It's more of a return to normality than the end of the book, 
which is why nothing is really achieved. In fact, this one doesn't even have Mrs. Darling having to wait up for her children. Once she comes home from the party, the kids are there already. There's not even the slightest amount of, oh my God, my kids are gone. All drama is drained away in this version. Next up, Lady and the Tramp. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a preview of the motion picture event soon to be seen in this theater. We would like to show you and tell you something about Walt Disney's Lady and the Tramp. It's his happiest motion picture, a story about dogs. Open your heart and build some glowing memories as Walt Disney takes you into that wonderful world you always hoped did exist and never knew for sure until now, the world of dogs. To anyone who's ever owned a dog, loved a dog, or just wanted a dog, this picture is yours, heart and soul. You'll meet Lady, the belle of the social set. She was beautiful, innocent, intelligent. And besides, she owned the nicest family in town. Lady was the catch of the season. That is, until the day that Tramp came into her life. Tramp, soldier of fortune. The Casanova from the wrong side of the tracks who wore no man's collar. It's what they do to your happy home. Move it over, will you, friend? You'll meet Jock, officially known as Heather Ladd of Glencairn, of the Blue Blood Glencairns, who collected blue ribbons, silver cups, and bones. <laughs> That's a grand sight. There's Faithful Trusty, the bloodhound of the Old South, but now given to dreams of faded glories. And there are the rollicking, roistering boys in the back room down at the dog pound. Boris, remnant of the old aristocracy who has fallen on evil days. He's like Gorky says in Lower Depths, quote, miserable being must find more miserable being. Then, he's happy. Pedro, whose visa and luck ran out at the same time. And my sister, Rosita Chiquita Juanita Chihuahua. And Peg, slightly shopworn sabrette from the dog and pony follies, who knew many things. One of them, how to sell a song. If he's a tramp, he's a good one. And I wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. And you'll meet Mr. Busy, the eager beaver. Six foot six and seven sixteenth inches. And the pair of mischievous Orientals, Psy and Am. We are Siamese, if you please. We are Siamese, if you don't please. It's Easter, it's Christmas, it's New Year's Eve. All the merry celebrations of your life rolled into one happy entertainment as Lady and the Tramp take you into their enchanted world. On that note, Lady and... On no note at all. Lady and the Tramp, 1955. 1955?! This surprised the hell out of me. Dan, you'll never guess what Lady and the Tramp reminded me of. Just suddenly out of nowhere, because I hadn't really done this thing or experienced this thing before when I saw it last. Uh, I actually do have no idea. What? It was a game set around 1909... 1912 in this case. Wait a minute. 
in America's golden age before right. okay. Charles. And- <laughs> I've, I've caught up. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Bioshock Infinite. I did not expect this to feel like that, but my God, when you watch Lady and the Tramp having done Bioshock Infinite, everything feels like it's just a set. And if you go behind the doors, it's going to be this, that the entirety of their town is going to be floating on the clouds. But in a good way, because it made it more evocative, because I've been, I've explored um, Colombia now. And uh, the, the town is designed after uh, Walt's hometown when he was a boy of... Uh, <laughs> Dan, you may know this one or like this one. Marceline, <laughs> the vampire queen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a depiction of an idyllic American town just before everything really kind of took off for them. So it was after the, uh, um, the, 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 the West was beginning to be tamed, just around the inception of the motor car. So you've still got people in pony and traps and uh, you've still got this sort of um, – everyone's very naive – uh, and it's it's very sort of middle class, sort of like, or, or I suppose upper middle class. Everyone's got good jobs before the Wall Street crash. It's pre-depression, and um, it's it's prior to all the problems that basically uh, beset the Disney studio before they managed to come through with uh, Snow White. Is this one of the first actual Disney direct American period pieces? Racking my brains here. Now I suppose Dumbo is as well. Yeah, I suppose that one is. It is the first more or less original Disney feature story, though. Yeah, based on what they came up with. This was a point at which Walt did kind of reach that age where you just get a whole lot of nostalgia kind of for where you were yeah. in your upbringing. So that, I think that is basically what has brought us to having a film here with this very idealized suburban America yeah. setting. But even so, I think it's the most beautiful looking Disney film yet up to this point. It is pretty like gorgeous. The, like, like the, it's a much more grounded setting. Obviously, it's not a big, crazy, fantastical. It's not Wonderland. It's not a fairy tale. But the art design is really spectacular. Everything's very, very grand and sumptuous, and it's made to look uh, because it's from a dog's eye view, and because it was their first, notably their first film in like cinemascope, so the first proper widescreen uh, production. Uh, it, they make the most use of the fact that the dog's view is low, looking up, so everything looks sort of towering and immense. Not terrifying and imposing, but just big. And so you've got the... the, the, the it's, it's almost epic from the point of view of the dog. Yeah. They make a lot of really creative uses of light in their background paintings, too, that I noticed. Like, you will have a shot in which it's night and it's dark and raining, but there will be uh, a, wind, a, a lit window that uh, we're kind of looking down from. And we can see Lady out in the backyard framed kind of in the light from that window. And it's just really beautiful imagery. They're actually kind of faking lighting in there in a much more complex, like really great looking way than a lot of the, more so than in a lot of their previous features, I think. Maybe it's just that prior to this are two uh, feature films with a much more abstract and really stylized, colorful background art, which is also great. Yeah. But going from that into this, there's just so much subtle detail in the background paintings and everything that just really stands out. And the widescreen, I'm sure, helps a great deal with that as well. That's something we haven't actually mentioned yet. Uh, Have you been watching the uh, films up to this point with Disney View on? I haven't. I watched in the original, like, 4.3. Gotcha. If you got the Blu-rays, it gives you usually gives you the option when you're starting up... uh, just imagine, rather than watching it as a square, they put these kind of like, almost like 
theatrical curtains on either side with beautiful painted backgrounds that accentuate rather than distract from what you're watching. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful way of allowing your eyes to relax into what you're seeing without being overly aware that it's a square. Interesting. I'll try that on one of these. It. Uh, and then they change free, depending on what you're watching. They've, they've been carefully uh, arranged. So there's a good like 15, 20 different backgrounds per film, uh, uh, and it changes depending on the setting. So like, if, if you're watching Pinocchio, it'll change to sort of a, a ragged, uh, moth-eaten the circus tent for the Stromboli scenes. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is a sumptuous film. And it's good that it's sumptuous because it's a, it's a lovely, charming, and fairly boring film about dogs. It's, it is <laughs> Sorry a very to be damning of this, but <laughs> yeah. it, it is a lovely, charming film about dogs. It is very sweet. I think it narrowly avoids crossing the line into full-on saccharine territory, probably just because of the scarier elements of the story yeah. that do happen, like the, the with, rat that might kill a baby is pretty. Yeah, nice. the, the whole sequence in the pound has a really kind of mm. dire, sort of ominous feel. At the whole uh, trustee's wagon chase at the end is yeah. actually really moving and like uh and that high stakes they drop the ball on that actually and this is a slight retconning of what i said on the uh the bambi thing they were going to kill trusty here and uh one of the uh mothers being consulted said oh no it'll upset the children and i realized what a big achievement bambi's mother dying at all is and i know i went on and on and on about it in that first episode but put it like this it really doesn't happen that often in Disney's where they actually straight out kill one of the characters. And for it to be a character who's not a parent or a, 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 a family member, but actually um, a, a friend, someone who's actually going out of their way to, to put their own life in danger, uh, is a huge deal. And they could have done it in this. But be, even though they didn't, because they did it once in Bambi, that left you on edge every single subsequent Disney film. Now, obviously, I wasn't there, but I can imagine for audiences, they play with you with deer. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a deer in um, uh, the Sword and the Stone that's about to get shot by Kay. Yeah. And there's a deer in, what was the other one? It's another one we've seen recently. Oh, Jungle Sleeping Book. Sheer Ka- Sheer Khan stalking um, the deer in, uh, in, in Jungle Book. You're like, oh, don't kill the deer. And it gets scared away. So it's, it's like they're teasing you, going, ah, ah, we could do this at any point. They've got their finger on the trigger to kill any of our beloved Disney characters. And it's not until some of the sort of the 90s ones that they start really going back to that again and going, you know what? Some people can die as part of the dramatic turns in the story. But it is actually admirable that they killed Bambi's mother, even if they didn't really examine it in a psychological sense, because it's, it's, a, it's a very traumatic moment, and it, it, they didn't shy away from upsetting the kids. And Lady and the Tramp just goes to show exactly what kind of lovely, ineffectual story can come when you don't do that. I don't know. I feel like you still get the power of the moments of a character sacrificing himself, even if it does turn out that the character does... Make yeah, it through. Like I don't. I don't think Trusty needs to die for this story to work. <laughs> I'm not saying I want the dog to die. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Well, no. Obviously, I'm just thinking. Like, and I, I know. I do know what you mean. That like actually having a character killed off, there is a permanence to that, and it's something that in stories, especially in kids' stories, mm. that a company like Disney can be very worried well, about the idea doing. Being that if if Trusty dies, the old guard dying to protect the young. It- He's gotten a big, mo- like that is his big glory moment. That chase, like you, yeah, seeing yeah. him get to. He's tracking something when you when everyone no one had faith that he could actually do that anymore. Yeah. He actually is the hero. He saves the day, and he basically 
he would have sacrificed himself and it very could easily could have died and you for a while you think he might have and it it almost feels like disney's kind of doing it again yeah. like the fact that like he's he looks dead jock is mournful and then they cut to a sweet little christmas thing all of a sudden just like they cut to the little springtime like song yeah. and it's just like they're doing it again they killed him and then they're going to something sweet yeah. it's it's i'm sure it wasn't actually intentional but it feels almost like a. I don't oh, know. We're doing, I think we're doing it to almost, you again. When you get to animation and, and every frame takes forty days to actually get done, um, true. You'd, you'd imagine that they'd be like, "Hang on a second, looking at this, it's a bit like Bambi." But uh, it, it, it could just be that the, the scene that follows it is so mind-bendingly cute. It's like <laughs> all the girls look like Lady, and the one boy looks like Tramp. <laughs> Sharon says along the lines of they'd all look the same, they'd look like scruffy mongols and they'd be worthless. <laughs> <laughs> you almost said it like Cruella de Vil. They're mongols, Anita. <laughs> no spots at all. Um, okay, what do you think about Lady in the Tramp Show? Um, I think it's, it's a bit of an unusual thing to say, but what I like most about it um, is the vocal work. Mm, mm. I actually yeah. think that the performances in this are fantastic and they've got um Peggy Lee doing Peg and the uh the cats and they've and the the woman who does Lady's voice um she she manages to go from a, a sweet little puppy through the various stages of of Lady's life and experience to being a mother mm. um and gives each um, each phase, if you like, a slightly different inter- I mean, it's not wildly different, but a slightly different intonation, so you mm. can kind of see her her progression. Barbara Luddy um, is her name. She also voices Merryweather in Sleeping Beauty. Oh yes, of course she did. She's got she? that wonderful kind of. It's it's almost like this soft voice that you just you don't want her to ever be hurt or upset. Mm. Yeah, which so, works perfectly for a sweet little puppy that you yeah. don't want to be hurt or upset they don't really pull their punches with that at the beginning either it's very like you know this is a dog film but she's gonna keep you up at night and she's gonna cry and she's gonna be annoying and it's like there's no she's disney wee on your carpet yeah there's no disney cat film that actually portrays cats being like they are apart from like from a cat lover's point of view the aristocats are little kids basically they're not yeah. really cats at all in the way that lady's most definitely a dog when she's a puppy um, but obviously this is a cat haters film because the Siamese cats are not <laughs> exemplary of the breed. Also, shockingly racist. Just like, come on. I had to teach Lyra about racism because of these cats. Cheers, Disney. We are Siamese, if you please. We are Siamese, if you don't please. Now we're looking over our new domicile If we like, we stay for maybe quite a while Reaching in and make it drown. If we sneak an up upon it carefully, there will be a head for you, a tail for me. And that was that was Peggy Lee, the not at all Asian lady, doing uh, uh, these like. I mean, this was made. Um, when was Breakfast at Tiffany's? 
This was made six years before Mickey Rooney, God rest his soul, did his horrible racist Mr. Unioshi Japanese man routine in Breakfast at Tiffany's. My God. Um, But that's just basically what America was like in those days. Same as with the Native Americans. They were just that fucking ignorant. You can just see the thought process. If there is no awareness that anyone would have any problem with it at all, then, well, what do we have? We've got cats. Oh, they're Siamese cats. Hey, we could make we could make that a thing, and yeah. that's that's the extent of the thought process. Yeah. Is all right, we're doing it. Then all again, hang on, hang on. Would it, would any Chinese people watching this or Asians in general go? Hang on a bit. Nah, who cares? There's not they didn't even stop and ask themselves that because it just wasn't done in those days. They just did what they felt would be amusing. Yeah, it really would not have felt terribly out of place at this time, but. Now, it doesn't really feel cruel. I mean, the, the what makes a red man red thing doesn't feel cruel. They're not making it really at the expense of the Native Americans. They're just trivializing something that's actually pretty kind of a serious thing. Yeah, and that and that one is a bit more pro, like offensive because it is actually trivializing the people themselves. This is like with these these cats aren't assholes because they're Siamese. They're assholes because they're cats. <laughs> <laughs> and this is obviously a dog a dog movie. The yeah. only reason they've got an Dark accent lines. is because they are Siamese cats and get it. <laughs> so like it's yeah, it's Oh yeah, and of course they're Siamese twin. Cats. Of course. Yeah. Oh, you didn't get that? No. <laughs> yeah. But I mean they they they're great. They're great fun to watch. They're little, like they're they're vicious little going after the fish and just ma- making life hell for for lady in general. I just wish that could have been a big old chunk of the film, frankly. That would have been good. But then she, they go off with the whole beaver thing going on. But the Bella Notta thing, as much as this is just a dog film about dogs doing dog things, it's so lovely and charming. The whole it really Italian is. meal, even with the, hey, I'm Italian stereotype, straight off of the pizza box. Um, yeah, but holy cow, that guy's voice is awesome. Yes. I, I would listen to anything from that voice. Yeah. But. It could be that I'm more attached to this scene because of Hot Shots part, dear. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, there's a uh, it, it's it's a lovely bit with the, the nudging the meatball forwards with the nose and um, on paper two dogs fall in love while eating spaghetti sounds like a mess, literally. But um, <laughs> and Walt thought the same thing too. He was yeah. not he did not have a lot of faith in this scene until I. It was either Frank Thomas or Ollie Johnson, I forget which, who like, fought for it and said, all right, I'm doing this myself. And he yeah. did it himself and proved that, yeah, this would this could be great. Speaking of the animation, actually, like by by this point, the Disney animation team, like they'd always been pretty much the best in the business. By this point, they are all basically masters. Mm-hmm. Like they it's not to, like I don't want to say they don't get better from here, but they really have hit almost like the peak. And from here, it's just like they keep on making some small little improvements here and there. But they're just uh, it's at the point where, like, especially watching some of Tramp's animation in this, I almost start getting angry. Looking at it just, as, <laughs> just looking at it as an animator, just because it. Like, I do this professionally and I look at that in my it just blows my mind how good it is. And they're doing it with pencil and paper. And <laughs> it's. Uh, it's frustrating. It's and I, then again, I'm sure the other uh, Milt Call was the animator who did Tramp's animation for the most part. And even yeah. among the nine old men, he was like the. I think they probably got angry looking at his stuff too. Yeah. Oh, uh, one of the uh, animators on the one of the um, docs that I'll be watching earlier today said, "I have been through the archives looking for a bad drawing from Milt Call. Doesn't exist. 
Yeah, he was. He must have screwed them up and thrown them away. Yeah. <laughs> he was an incredible draftsman. There was another, again, I can't remember if it was Frank Thomas or Ellie Johnson, who was paired with him a lot of the time on a lot yeah. of these features and working closely with him. And he always felt very self-conscious about his own draftsmanship. He didn't think he was a very good, he didn't think he was very good at drawing. You look at his drawings, they're incredible. It's that he was sitting next to Milt Call all the time. Yeah. And that anyone would feel inferior just next to that. Like, it's infuriating. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah. Look at how many years they had to get good, Dan. When you're 80, I'm sure yours will They were called old there. men. you got to wait till you're old, Dan. The, <laughs> then you'll be really good. There are maybe five animators who have lived since who have worked in this business since then who i would say are on that level this yeah. guy was incredible <laughs> I love <laughs> even in disney enthusiasm about this stuff but, uh, even in disney like there are a few i think i think glenn Keane is just is on his level mm-hmm. and i think there are a handful of the other kind of the nine new men unofficially whatever they're whatever they're called kind of in that that uh, 90s era but holy cow he's good sorry to keep going back to it uh Tangled. Who animated Rapunzel? Uh, Glenn Keane actually was the directing... He didn't actually animate animate um, because he was a 2D animator, but he was the directing animator, and he worked very, very hard to try to make, like, help the 3D animators make their 3D animation look like 2D does, which is a very, very hard thing to do. Absolutely. But, like, it ended in... It resulted in some of the most appealing 3d animated characters i think i've ever seen visually like it it absolutely paid off and it it's a testament to how good he is basically every day you know i'm going to talk about tangled later we'll I'll yeah, talk about uh, yeah, we will, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I did, that is a for me an example of, of perfection in, in yeah. terms of animation it's it's just wonderful and so th- this is why i feel like I, i'm not dwelling in the past i love looking to the future and seeing the the things that develop every few years and just the little leaps that move forwards and i i'm, I'm i love being optimistic about that stuff i hate feeling like um the future is in the hands of incompetence or the hands of people who don't know what the hell they're doing so yeah whenever we go through a, a rough patch of disney i get uh, you know it, it, years of anxiety because it's like well what are you doing to this company we'll come to that later um but yeah, before we leave Lady and the Tramp, Peg, uh, one of the absolute standouts for me, you know, some some proper true attitude in a film that's otherwise very, uh, very twee and very cute. She's got like a sway and a swagger and she's she's a sexy dog, let's face it. And yet at the same time, they've not made her like a perfect dog either. She's not like a, a, like a, a, a show dog or a pedigree. She's got these great big square gappy teeth and, uh, you know, she's she's been around the dog block. Uh, but so it gives her much more character. What a dog. He's a tramp, but they love him. Breaks a new heart every day. He's a tramp, they adore him. And I only hope he'll stay that way. He's a tramp, he's a scoundrel, he's a rounder, he's a cab, he's a tramp, but I love him, yes, even I have got it pretty bad, you can never tell when he'll show up, he gives you plenty of trouble, 
I guess he's just a no-count pup But I wish that he were double He's a tramp He's a rover And there's nothing more to say If he's a tramp He's a good one And I wish that I could travel his way Wish that I could travel his way Wish that I could travel his way Anymore on Lady and the Tramp. Any, anything bad about Lady and the Tramp that you can think of? I mean, it is a much smaller story in terms of scale, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the characters are all endearing enough to carry it through. It can be a little slow. Honestly, a lot of Disney films around this era were not, like, their plot was not what was carrying them through. No. It was really all pure character and charm and some great songs and just some beautiful-looking stuff. It really wasn't until later that you really gotten some some more like plot driven stuff. But uh yeah. The other thing that's important to note that there is a reason why we're doing a Disney series of podcasts up until the nineties, really, I mean, there was almost nothing. There was occasional films came out, like Don Bluth had a good go at it. Um that uh outside of Japan, American animation studios just didn't happen. They didn't take off. They they didn't succeed anywhere near in the way that Disney did. It was a very tough game, and Disney were barely able to stay afloat on what they'd already made and what they'd already sunk into into it. It took uh, DreamWorks stepping up to the plate, uh, following Pixar, who were already part of Disney, to to really change the scene. And then Fox followed on from that. So basically, the 20th century belonged to Disney. Any, I mean, to Al Pacino. No, that was just when he was the devil. Oh. <laughs> that was fictional. Uh, Dan, am I wrong on this? Because you know, I don't know what I want st- There's been enough hyperbole in um, in all these Disney docs and stuff, but I, I, I don't want to say anything that's actually not straightforward true. But I can't think of any other studio that really managed to make a go of it. I mean, there were other animation studios around doing tons of TV and tons of uh, yeah. Commercial work, obviously, Ralph like actually uh, had a go. Oh, like Warner Brothers, like Warner Brothers had a pretty su- great, successful run of their Looney Tunes shorts. Oh uh, yeah, no, sorry, shorts, yes, animation, TV. Oh yeah, yes. like I'm it's, talking about go, fully, fully into features, animated features. No, Disney was pretty much the game in town. Yeah, from '37 through to what uh, mid '90s with Pixar, and then late '90s with uh, DreamWorks PDI. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, there's things like, actually, like I said, Don Bluth's American Tale and a couple of, like, Old Dogs Go to Heaven, Rock-A-Doodle and various other things. But these always seem to be sort of like, it felt like they were trying to horn in on Disney's territory. And especially, they came out at around about the time when Disney were floundering, no pun intended, (laughs) just prior to the aptly named Flounder. Um, So they almost, they could actually have knocked Disney down had they not made some clever decisions at that point. Yeah, Bluth had a pretty good go of it. He got... How many films total? Like at least five. He got at least five good films out, which is pretty. Which is a pretty good run, especially considering no one else had really managed to make yeah high profile other that probably that many high profile animated features aside from Disney up to that point. We'll talk about that when we come to the the Rocky uh, yeah third, third fourth fourth phase yeah fourth phase because if you count the, the wartime ones as the second phase. But both, I mean, both Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp had been quite commercially successful, though. Yeah. So like, Relative to Alice in Wonderland. 
Yeah, like uh, Peter Pan, I think, was the most commercially successful of its year. And uh, People didn't mind racism. They positively relished it. (laughs) (laughs) Big thumbs up from the American public. (laughs) But uh, but, yeah, and Lady and the Tramp also, another, another big hit. So Disney was really coming back in a pretty big way. Next up, we have Sleeping Beauty. Listen out for the magnificent soundtrack, which is the ballet by Tchaikovsky, centered around this very fairy tale. Sleeping Beauty, sparkling with colorful spectacle, brimming with gay music and delightful new songs, filled with fascinating new Disney characters. I wonder, I wonder. You'll meet lovely Princess Briar Rose. Prince Philip and Samson, his noble steed. You'll meet the most delightful fairies who ever wafted a magic wand. Flora. Follow me. Fauna. And Merryweather. 
will share the fun with King Stephen and King Hubert. <laughs> You'll see Maleficent work her wondrous witchcraft. Stand back, you fools! The fine art of animation becomes magnificent entertainment as Walt Disney brings one of the world's favorite stories to the screen. It's filled with magical fun. It's spectacular in its beauty, and there's adventure to excite every emotion. The management of this theater is proud to recommend this magnificent motion picture to every member of every family everywhere. Right, now the Cinderella music's stuck in my head. <laughs> Sorry to, to lay into Peter Pan so much, especially since we seem to be on opposite sides of this one. It's, I suppose it, it reminds me of like trying to go back to the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings once you've seen the Fellowship of the Ring. It's yeah, just no, and, so and, hard. It, all you see is what they got wrong. Yeah, and I, and I don't blame you. Like I feel similarly about that. It makes it much harder for me to uh, enjoy it as much as I would otherwise. I generally, and it's super hard to do so I know I'm not always successful I generally try to be like kind of approaching them on their own merits it's like because I know like not yeah. only with the Ralph Bakshi ones like obviously I love the Peter Jackson ones way more than I love the Ralph Bakshi stuff and the and the earlier Lord of the Rings animated stuff but for what it was at its time like I I kind of like and I, I don't fault it for not being Peter Jackson's thing Oh, no, no, no. that's not no that's not my point I, I always found it tedious and annoying but just that that was ramped up to 11 once i'd seen the you know, three version it was like wow this is actually how it could be done yeah yeah it's it's really hard not to when you know how well like when you can see an example of how it could be great yeah. right there it is it's harder like it's easy to forget that at the time like when you don't have that example of how it could be great right there already to fall like without that example to follow in place yeah yeah it's it's difficult to keep that context in mind. Okay, so the next one, Sleeping Beauty, 1959. This was Disney's attempt to go all out with the ink and paint. This was also, though they didn't know it at the time, the last hurrah for ink and paint. This cost a phenomenal amount of money for them to make, $6 million, which was way more than they were prepared to spend. And um, it was all to make it look as absolutely sumptuous as they possibly could. And um, I've heard uh, in the, uh, the, the making of docs, they're talking about how every single frame of this film, if you just took it as a still, you could put it on a wall because it's just that beautiful. And that's not hyperbole. That's actually true. It really is. It's striking. It's evocative. It's so sumptuous. Uh, Dan, do you want to talk about this one? Uh, sure. I mean, like you said, Disney was wanting to make this he wanted to make Sleeping Beauty his studio's masterpiece because he'd built up over the decades this incredible animated film creating machine and he wanted to like he wanted to show like we're on top of the world right now we've got we've been making lots of money with these things let us make the best thing we are capable of making yeah. and to spare no expense whatsoever and he I mean at the time Disneyland was being built he 
uh, he even went so far as to create a Sleeping Beauty attraction there to tie in with the film's release. Yeah, he was he was going all in on this movie. Well, he built the castle. This is norm. That that's yeah. the Disney logo. That's this castle. Yeah, and the, yeah, like the background paintings are so much more complex and full of detail, and most of them painted by one guy. <laughs> And yeah, this is the guy who uh, went to Europe and, and to uh, the tapestries that we have there and just brought that back with him. Yeah, and the character animation on display is excellent. The designs of the characters are a bit more difficult to animate within. As Who was this was, one guy? Sorry, we can't not credit him at this point. Is it Clyde Geronomi yeah, like, or Les Clark? No, was, Eric no, Larson? Wolfgang Ratherman? It's no, not I mean, those are all the animators. Up, yeah. It was okay. it was a uh, it was the painter, and I, yeah, we do need to credit this guy because the look is basically entirely credited to him. In the same way that uh, Bill Pete did, like just made 101 Dalmatians. Evan to Earl, yeah. Oh, Earl, Earl also painted a majority of the backgrounds himself. Yep, Evan Earl. Yep. Yeah, he just did an incredible amount of beautiful, beautiful work with a really, really cool art design in general. Just a very geometrical shapes, but it's, yeah, just the backgrounds are kind of simplified into geometrical shapes, but they are still so much rich detail mm. layered into every tree and every bush, and it's just very beautiful. And, and you it's, really it gives a depth it. to the screen as well. It really does, and because the character designs are in a lot of previous uh, Disney films, the characters can sometimes feel a little bit separate from the backgrounds uh, yeah. so in some more than others. Mary because, Blair's backgrounds don't fit with the rounded characters that got stuck on them. Like say Johnny Appleseed, they used this as an example. In yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Which is just, which is just, I mean, you're designing characters to be like easy to animate and you're not really necessarily paying as much attention to colors going together with the backgrounds as, as, uh, as they were with this one. So they really tried to, Make the character design the characters to fit in with this background perfectly, and even down to, I think they were, they were spending a lot longer on individual drawings, especially of uh, of Aurora and the prince. I th- I th- suspect they were even really getting nitpicky about line width on just the individual lines created for them. Mm. I think they were animating a lot of this on ones, which is to say they were animating a lot of it every single frame rather than every other frame as you often do with 2D animation. Yeah. Just a staggering amount of work. When people talk about how there's never going to be another film made like this again, it's kind of like looking at like maybe a huge ornate tapestry all done by hand or some sort of piece of art that is painstakingly created in a way that people would not do anymore and that people will never probably do anymore. Again, the Lord of the Rings comes up because the modern day equivalent of Lord of the Rings is The Hobbit and they're doing so much more with Word of Digital now than they did back then in the day. They they don't even do bigatures anymore. So it comes down to the fact that the production process is different, not specifically the end result, but the, yeah, as you say, the the actual, the way they get there, the, the, the travel that is involved with it. It it doesn't even it doesn't even make good business sense to do this. This was the second highest grossing film of 1959, made 21 million for the 6 million that it was re- required. It's made 51 million all told since then, and it was still not enough for what they needed. Yeah, it really was just and it, it was a huge gamble in the first place and just impractical really to make a film this expensive and expect it to 
and expect it to succeed. I, I suspect Disney was trying to really was hoping to really kind of nail that Snow White success again with this. Yeah. Or at least hoping. I don't know if it was just wishful thinking or what, but uh Well Ben Hur, which was the number one grossing film of that year, Charlton Heston, uh thirty six million that made versus their twenty one million. But that cost fifteen million. So it cost three times as much as uh, Sleeping Beauty. No, no, just under three times as much. So it's uh, for what they put into it, the hours, it's still pound for pound more profitable than the best that they possibly could have hoped for. Yeah. And the Tchaikovsky symphony inspired score mm. is also really different for a, a Disney film. Like I guess Fantasia is the closest thing you can find to it, but it really does lend it a unique feel and a, just a kind of richness. That well, the whole thing plays out as a ballet. It really kind of, you yeah, it really does. The opera. So it, what, I really do appreciate the artistry on display. I mean, it's, it's not my favorite looking film, even despite all, uh, despite all of this, it, but I really do appreciate just the process and the craft. Yeah. Just playing out before me. Sure. Um, I was just going to ask, where does this, um, uh, financially problematic situation come from then if it if it did make money in terms of what the investment in this actual film was is it to do with the fact that they were trying to recoup uh losses from previous films uh, i mean the last few films have been doing quite well for them maybe I just sus- because that they were making the park as well and that must have cost them a pretty penny uh, so, yeah just everything was factored in financially that year and it was like we've got right. to make this much with sleeping beauty and if we don't then we're under budget on this yeah disney as a company was really quite diverse by this point and yeah. walt would have been getting pulled in a lot of different directions as well they were making live action films they were making it's huge theme parks which walt would have been heavily it's investing a lot of time in uh, disney as a company was growing pretty large and doing a lot of different things at this point and yeah. It was that ultimate defi- capital which needed to be recouped for the movies. And animation's an expensive thing to do, and it was as much expense as required. It required to be poured into it. It did not always pay out terribly well. Yeah, it it, it was. Yeah, it wasn't. It was kind of proving to not be an easy thing to do and make a profit at. But I mean, Walt was. I mean, Walt built that company on animation, so he was going to fight to keep it going as much as he possibly could. And I'm sure that's the only reason they kept on making films up to this point and beyond is because Walt would just really love this stuff. And this was very much the style that he was dedicated to as well, wasn't it? This incredible craftsmanship going into meticulously drawn and, and inked um, Definitely. Work. Yeah, he, he really just, he wanted to make this film the absolute best thing that his studio was capable of. And these are the, some of the best artists doing this in the world. He, he just wanted this to be the masterpiece. And it is incredibly beautiful, I have to say. It, it really is. It, it's summed up repeatedly as, as being something that you can take each individual frame and, that, and frame it and hang it on the wall. And that's a painting. I've just been checking to see whether I was right there and whether Sleeping Beauty's castle was the one at, at Disneyland. It was. Uh, Cinderella's castle is also at the at two theme parks. Uh, the Magic Kingdom at the Walt Disney World Florida, of course. So Cinderella in Florida, Sleeping Beauty in, in L.A. And Tokyo Disneyland as well. So uh, they both look pretty similar. But the, the this castle... From the two of them, is so emblematic of Disney. So, I mean, it, it, 
you it's almost as famous as Mickey, maybe more. Maybe more today now, actually, now that I think about it. Actually, yeah, probably. You will see some logo form of this castle yeah. all over the place. And it, it just sums up absolutely... Whenever Disney is in crisis, whenever Disney thinks, what the hell do we do now? How do we come back from this princess castle? And obviously we'll talk about this when it, we, we do our princess show, but my God, it works. It really does. Every single one of the times that they've gone right, let's do a princess and a castle, they just capture the world again. It may not be my favorite films. I have to give them monkeys about Cinderella, frankly, but they grab the public's attention. Even Frozen, which subverts the princess story they've been doing for years, 1.1 billion at the moment. That's how much they captivated the public. There's a lot to like. There's a lot of other elements of the film that I like a lot, too. Like, yeah. the three fairies are adorable. Especially Meriwether. Yeah. And I, I feel like I should have mentioned Verna Felton before, but her voice as the fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. As, oh, yeah. Uh, she's the also the, hearts. She's the, elef- the, the meanest matriarch elephant in Dumbo as well. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's kind of like Sterling Holloway in that she's just one of those voices that pops up in seemingly every other Disney production. Yeah. But you are always happy to hear them. Eleanor Audley as well comes back from being the uh, the wicked stepmother as Maleficent even more like this combines the wicked queen from Snow White and the uh, wicked stepmother into this epitome of wickedness on the whole though the movie's actually kind of dull oh yeah <laughs> it's dull and it's shallow and as much as we've said it's it's, it's the same equivalent of the, uh, the, the the doggy stuff I suppose they attach a lot more drama to it this whole the, the, the girl's gonna die Aurora says 18 lines in the film the, the crucial element of her dance in the forest with that owl it's the owl again um, and uh, and you know meeting the prince that's who Aurora is and that's key because after that, she's asleep. <laughs> and yet she's like one of the flagship Disney princesses. What the fuck does she do? She's in all of like 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, she's, she's a MacGuffin. She's not actually a character. She's she just what certainly isn't the, the main. She certainly isn't the main character of the film. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'd say the fairies are. Yeah. But yeah. I guess that's the I guess that's the difference. Like in Lady of the Tramp, at least you've got a lot of characters that you can care about and that are appealing and a lot charming. Of interplay, yeah, yeah, and lots of great interplay. And in this, you have a few characters who are great. You've got the fairies. Maleficent's pretty awesome, and probably a handful of other little side characters here and there. But in terms of our main, uh, theoretically our hero characters, uh, the prince and Aurora. We're kind of right back to Snow White territory with just a whole lot of nothing and less, honestly, in, in Aurora's case. Yeah. The prince actually, actually, he has a name and some personality. Philip for has some stuff to do as opposed to charming. 
Right. He's got uh, but, a dragon to beat. I love the fact... I, I think some of the best stuff that Philip has to do, he doesn't even actually do it. It's just in this dream sequence, that uh, the future sequence, that when Maleficent's... Um, it kind of references the fact that it's going to go on for a hundred years. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know. You're, this spell shall break. I'm going to let you go. But it's going to be in a hundred years' time, and you're going to be a walking corpse. And she gloats over this. But at the same time, what the words she's delivering sound grandiose. That's one of my favorite bits of the film. She is just malice right there. I don't know about you, Dan, but I'd kind of like to find out more about Maleficent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come now, Prince Philip. Why some melancholy? A wondrous future lies before you. You, the destined hero of a charming fairy tale come true. Behold, King Stefan's castle. And in yonder topmost tower, dreaming of her true love, the Princess Aurora. But see the gracious whim of fate. Why, tis the selfsame peasant maid who won the heart of our noble prince but yesterday. She is indeed most wondrous fair. Gold of sunshine in her hair. Lips that shame the red, red rose. In ageless sleep she finds repose. The years roll by, but a hundred years to a steadfast heart are but a day. And now the gates of the dungeon part, and our prince is free to go his way. Off he rides on his noble steed, a valiant figure, straight and tall, to wake his love with love's first kiss. And prove that true love conquers all. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, yeah. Phil, Philip's got some stuff to do. And uh, again, the dragon is kind of an achievement. But then we've just seen Smaug. So, mm. yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just not. It's just a dull kind of. It's a dull movie. It's big and beautiful and boring. And which is a shame. It, it, yeah. That's probably a good way of putting it. It's, it's, it's a, I, I suppose it can captivate people's hearts and ears and, um, and their eyes, and it's, it's, it's enchanting to look at and to think about, but it's not exactly engaging. Yeah, that really is it. And it certainly doesn't engage your brain, my God. And this was around the time working on this film that even Disney himself was getting pretty worried that animation was just going to be too expensive to continue producing, yeah. unless something changed pretty significantly and something this, did and he didn't like it he didn't no i mean i'm sure he didn't like to have i'm sure he didn't like having to do it yeah. like it's just kind of a reality of the, keeping this business going yeah. sleeping beauty basically kicks off a long era of uncertainty for the long-term future of disney animation from he, from this film onward there's always that lingering question being posed by certain people inside and outside the company of should disney keep should Disney keep making these things? If it had made twice as much as it did, if it had made like a hundred million dollars, somehow paid off all of Disney's debts, allowed them to push forward with many more projects, how different do you think the years after that would be with maintaining income paint? Looking at 
the trend as it was going, I think this breaking point was going to get hit at some point or other. Uh, well, eventually. we were entering the 60s when the innocence... This, this was a different world. They had to change themselves, actually. Sorry, sorry, Dan, I'm answering my own bloody question. Carry on. <laughs> That's okay. It's just, well, just in terms of production, like, these films were getting really more and more expensive to make. It's just as they got better at it and making more and uh, the craft of it. And it was just looking at the trend going backward. They about every other one roughly is successful and every other and every other one is not. Yeah. It, it doesn't alternate evenly, but and it's there's about no half perfect half. Uh, form for it either. It's not just dogs will be successful. Princesses won't or, the, or vice versa. Right. It's really an unpredictable sort of business. And, putting that kind of crazy money into something that's really unpredictable. Like something was going to have to change in the way they produce these things to make them more like, uh, to make them more viable as an actual business prospect. Yeah. I think they probably would have found that, um, uh, demand would have, uh, added its pressure on as well because finances aside, this style of animation was so slow. It mm. took so long to put these films together. And as cinema is becoming more and more popular and more and more widespread, the demand for more animated films yeah. to put out, I think, would have just overtaken them. Even if they could have carried on affording to do it that way, I, it just, I don't think the speed would have been able to keep up with them. It took four years between Tramp and Beauty. You mentioned the nine old men before. Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Carl, uh, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, and Wolfgang Ratherman, and Frank Thomas. From the words of a hard-working animator and animation enthusiast, who were the nine old men? These were basically guys that had joined the studio. Maybe one or two of them had been around for Snow White, but a lot of them came in in the uh, years that followed it, after Snow White had been a big success. And they basically came in and built up the elevated the craft of animation mm. to entire new levels. They were very talented guys to begin with, and they were given an opportunity and the budget and the faith in them from from Walt. Walt basically wanted them to take this medium further than it had ever been. It, it, as he had been doing with Snow White, he'd been wanting to elevate what animation looked like and what it could be. And these guys did it. They were so, just masters at this craft of animation. And they all had their different strengths and their different, uh, I mean, as all animators do, like uh, Milt Call, this incredible draftsman. Uh, Ward Kimball, I believe, it's like great with doing really animated, caricatured, kind of cartoony, uh, sort of goofy characters. Like he, he'd be the, I believe he's the, guy who'd be given characters like the Cheshire Cat and the mm. uh, Crocodile and Peter Pan and stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, and they just were just these titans in, in the animation field. Just incredible artists, great storytellers, pretty great actors as well as you kind of have to develop that skill as an animator. Mm. You just you deploy it in a completely different way. And yeah, just a bunch of amazing artists. Just it's kind of a dream team of talent that Walt had gathered and cultivated and just an incredible crew and they lasted all the way up to like rescuers era yeah i believe well, so uh, not all of them obviously but uh, but the the last one i think bowed out around then 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think that is around the time that Frank Thomas was on Rescuers. I think Milt Call still was too. Mm. But yeah, that's so, interesting. I'll still check and see which one is the last one that had one of the nine old men on it. Well, yeah, more on that soon. <clears throat> oh yeah, more on the. There's, plenty, there's plenty of time to get bummed out about where Disney goes. Yeah, we're still the, going strong at the moment, so let's get oh, back yeah. on the track. Oh, before we move on. A bit of practicality struck me during the Sleeping Beauty thing, and it's a fairy tale, I know, but let's apply a bit of crazy practicality here, shall we? Why were King Stefan and company, like, all getting ready to, like, with the, the setting the fireworks off already in celebration of Aurora coming home, with apparently no connection or communication with the fairies in 16 years, which, by the way, goes by like that, and it doesn't feel like anything's changed or anyone's gotten any older apart from Aurora and Philip, and it reminded me of Fable, you know, when you basically, it's like, oh, you're aging, but you're aging really rapidly and everyone else is staying the same age, so actually it feels like you got a wasting disease. And then, But in Fable, you actually get really old and everyone stays the same age. So there's no communication between them at all. The plan is um, that she, Aurora is going to prick her finger on a spindle and die. That becomes the new plan after you can't change the prophecy. You, he burns all the spinning wheels even though it's kind of an accepted thing. And then it's just like, right, we burned all the spinning wheels, let's just hope everything happens great, and then we'll put some fireworks off. Then when things don't go peachy, and of course it does bloody happen, despite the fact that they should have bloody well provided for that anyway, because that's how prophecies work in fairy tales. It's actually really clever the way Merryweather goes, right, we'll just add a caveat to that, which will allow us to get out of it. And then Maleficent later goes, we'll just add a caveat to the caveat, shall we, with the whole, oh, it'll happen, but in a hundred years. The fairies decide, in their infinite wisdom, to put the entirety of the kingdom to sleep, in parallel with Aurora. Why? She's just a princess. You know, they'll be really disappointed, but ultimately, would it not make the most sense to just let the curse carry through, let true love turn up and kiss her. I'm assuming this kingdom has some sort of industry that they trade with other kingdoms. If they drop off the map for as long as it takes to actually wake this princess up, they will be, well, basically another kingdom would just come in and take over because everyone's asleep. I'm applying Game of Thrones logic to Sleeping Beauty here, but it just doesn't make any sense. It is a weird decision. It does kind of smack of that all right, we failed. We can either face the music and admit this, or we can burn the house down. <laughs> or just go look. <laughs> Let's just put everyone to sleep. That's like cursing everyone. And also, it's because there was the whole hundred years thing in the thorn bushes, and they had to circumvent that so that this prince was so. Like, because originally, like, the prince came along and he was not the person in the creepy arranged marriage. Let's remember at the beginning, like, this guy goes to the cradle of Aurora and his dad elbows him and goes, ah, see that? You'll be in her soon. And uh, that is the grossest (laughs) fucking thing. They started it. They started it. Okay. (laughs) Young lad looking at his baby bride. Fucking creepy. Sorry, Disney. But there you go. I have to admit, speaking of the practicality side of things, it did strike me as how they'd 
Right. Maleficent says that this will happen before the sun sets on her 16th birthday. They've hidden her in this cottage for almost 16 for years. 16, for 15 years and 364 days. Wait 12 hours. Wait till the sun set on her 16th birthday, then take her back to the castle. So little practicality. And I love Sleeping Beauty. It's a beautiful film, but there's not a, not a lick of sensibility in this film. Except no. Merryweather. Merryweather appears to have her head screwed on, but she's too busy going, make it blue, make it pink, make it blue, make it pink, which for some reason Lyra's fixated on. This very much does fall into the category of things that annoy me about, like with Snow White and with uh, Cinderella, that, that things happen because they have to happen in because order fairy to tales. progress. Yeah. yeah, it is very much a because we, we fairy tales logic. We have an end point that we have to get to, and we don't want to have to think too hard about what's going to get us from A to B. See, I love that these exist because the new fairy tales get to subvert these and apply some humanity and real genuine emotional conflict to an otherwise, you know, just dismissed scenario. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just maybe the prince comes along. So, yeah, it is an absolute triumph of animation, uh, but zero on the practicality scale. (laughs) I think I've made like an upstart. Well, they they set that tone from the beginning, too. It's like, all right, Maleficent has cursed our young daughter to, in 16 years, prick her finger on a spinning wheel. Let's burn all of them now and hope no one makes any more of them in the following 16 years. And in the meantime, everybody in this kingdom will go naked or only wear clothes that were made 16 years ago. Again, how is that going to affect the infrastructure of this country? They're suddenly going to need to import all of their clothes. Or Uh, weave them from Hessian. They could go back to knitted wool, maybe. Oh, no, because you've got to spin in order to get... Oh. This is mental. It is a bit. Yeah. Anyway. But there, there is a lovely kind of the, the dancing in the clouds thing. This is a recurring theme for Disney. It happened in, I believe, Snow, uh, Cinderella. And there's another one as well. The dancing round and round. Oh, it's, it's referenced in Enchanted. Okay, yes. basically, the, 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 the dancing in Cinderella is mimicked in this uh, at the end and the sort of dancing run around it. It's as if they're in the clouds, and that's wonderful. And I think I'm overly spiky about this kind of thing because I do love the film for its actual merits, but then when I hear people saying, oh, no, this is just the, the, the quintessential Disney film because every girl wants to be a princess and meet a prince, and every prince wants to meet a princess. No, 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 that's not what they said. Oh, what they said it was every girl, uh, every young girl wants to meet a prince, mm-hmm. and every prince wants to meet a lovely girl. She doesn't even get to be a princess until he's selected her. And she has to be lovely. (laughs) She can't be awkward or annoying, even. I think, as well, I was always going to be hard on this one story-wise because Sleeping Beauty is one of the most um, overt fairy tales about burgeoning sexuality that there is. And to have that inevitably Disney whitewashed... Yeah, she does, you know, you know, it lost a lot of what that story is about. 16 years old, lips that shame the red, red rose, and then she will prick her finger. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have Freud back in those days. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They didn't need Freud because they had stories like this. And she won't just prick her finger. She'll die because of it. Well, this, yeah, I mean... 
I'll probably talk more about that when we do the princess episodes. Oh, and so the other thing is, too much into it now. after the prince kisses her, just the, watch that, that, that classic moment where she opens her eyes and then smiles, that dead-eyed, smiling expression. It's like the Bride of Dracula. <laughs> it's, it's lovely. It's classic. It's creepy as all hell. Because she's not smiling with her eyes. She's smiling with her mouth. And then she's about to go <laughs> on him. Bite his head off. I do really like, and this surprised me actually, um, the scene where um, the fairies are trying to make the cake mm-hmm. and make the dress. Even though there's a part of my brain that goes 16 years and they never figured out what the oven was for. Yes, um, this comes back to the 16 years. What the hell were they doing for 16 years? What have they been eating? Grass? Um, but um, Doesn't know how to make clothes. Doesn't know how to make cakes. Somehow self-sufficient. The house would have burned down after one day. <laughs> Quite I assume, I Either that, that or because... Aurora's been doing it all. <laughs> well, no, I assumed this was because they were like each of the fairies was doing something, or at least uh, uh, Flora and Fauna were doing something that they'd always wanted to do but never actually had. Like someone else, one of the other fairies probably knew how to cook, or Aurora, Aurora did. One of the other ones probably knew something about clothes, but but Flora wanted to do Surely it. Surely you'd give it to the ones with the specialty. You're like, you're, you're not like right, we need to uh, uh, design a wedding dress here. Let's give it to Thumbs. Oh, no, I wanted to make a from, wedding from dress. From Weather's expression, I would guess she's the one who's actually quite good at all of these things. Well, and, or she's, <laughs> she's at least knows that, well, she at least knows that this is a bad idea. Just like, you can't sew. She's never cooked. <laughs> but their other two are so enthusiastic that she just kind of as I said, Meriwether's secret hero of this film. That wrong focus of the film should have been all about Meriwether. But I just, there's, there's something incredibly funny to me about that scene where she folds the eggs into the mixture and <laughs> she like two eggs in the bowl. And... Okay, the fairy business is probably the highlight of the film, actually, now that we've talked about it. It's, it's, it really is. It's nonsensical, but it's at least lively. It's, it's Sorcerer's Apprentice influenced as well, so it does have that link to Fantasia, which I love. Oh, was it Cinderella or this one where you pointed out that the king, who wants grandchildren, but not because he's like, I must have heirs for the throne, because he just really wants grandchildren so he can s- pretend to be a dog and be ridden around by them. Cinderella. Cinderella, I think. Okay, yeah. that's sweet. That's nice. I actually, I actually like that's... that King and uh, I know I'm going back here, but that King and Duke scenes in Cinderella are really entertaining. Like those are fun characters. They're, yeah, they're okay. I suppose they bring back the fun with the minstrel in, in uh, Sleeping Beauty as well. Yeah. I think they were trying to recreate that a little bit with the two kings in this, but the, mm. because they're effectively trying to marry two infants, they just <laughs> come off as really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. The the the. the King who wants the grandchildren mitigates slightly the sending the nine ring raids after Cinderella. You seize her. <laughs> See, she could be carrying my grandchild. She even hides her. under a tree, and like the the ring raids go by, and she's like, oh, oh, oh. and then like, they're sniffing around the road for her, but they don't. Does find she throw the mushrooms to distract them? No, no. Uh. Come on, bucket, mop, broom. Flora says, clean up the room. And now to make a lovely dress fit to grace a fair princess. Eggs, flour, nibble. Just do it like it says here in the book. I'll put on the candles.
No, not pink. Make it blue. Mary with her. Make it pink. <laughs> 